Hello and welcome back to The Game Pit. My name's Sean and this is episode 148. And Ronan, we're back to our pit spit format. We are indeed, Sean. We have a plethora of games (laughs) to go through. And as usual, we have not both played all of these games. I've played all the ones I'm going to introduce. Sean's played all the ones he's introduced. But we have played some of them. Either we both have a copy or, Sean, we are in the rare and sort of lucky situation during these times that we do actually get to see each other sometimes. I wouldn't call that lucky getting to see you, to be fair. I was trying to be nice to you. Let's start to explain the situation. Yeah, so we are both uh, railway workers and uh, the government has designated us both key workers. I work in the control, Ronan works on the underground, either on the tracks or in the control room. And because of that, I have to travel down to London, I need somewhere to stay. And because I'm a key worker, I get to stay with Ronan. Yay! You get to stay with me because I took pity on you, not because you're a key worker. Well... (laughs) You just sent a photo of me to the government. They're like, yeah, just let him in. Look at this poor creature. Something must be done for him. (laughs) So, yeah, getting to go to work even, Sean, and getting out of the house and getting to see part of the world is a relief. I'm genuinely never happier than when I'm getting in the car and taking a little drive through London down to Kensington and getting to actually interact with other people. Genuinely, I think it's what's keeping me sane. Uh, yeah, I mean, not to rub it into people, it does it does lift your spirits. But I mean, again, we were talking the other day. People are just finding ways to to be with their family. I'm playing a lot more board games with James. We're playing we're playing a lot of Minecraft with James. <laughs> He's insisting I play on the actual survival Minecraft, which is terrifying. You're like the anti Enderman. <laughs> anyway, yeah, and. I've just, we've had uh, Lloyd and Puri on here, but I don't think G is the, is the other member, but we've, the four of us have just started an Arkham Horror card game campaign online. And the lucky thing is we all households own a copy of it. So it makes it super easy that we can follow along. We've all got the locations. Uh, I just run the encounter deck and it, we, we've only done one so far and we were terrible. We failed. We started the Dunwich cycle, but it was loads of fun, and that's also been a good thing. And it's something we never would have done before. We'd have said, yeah, yeah, we'll play Arkhamora someday, and never actually would the four of us really got together for a campaign. So strangely, it's opened up other opportunities for gaming just in a different way. And, you know, you have to take the positives with that. Absolutely. Just going back to G, he point blank refuses to come on the show. It's not like we haven't asked him. No, he has sound edited with that RPG one we had that we recorded in the proper studio that sounded strangely yes. good. <laughs> And he's given, us, he's given us some technical advice in the past. He has. Oh, Put your microphone on a cushion. <laughs> <laughs> what? Do I cut a cushion? What? It wouldn't fall over. <laughs> he was Mine, doing mine's, on a, mine's on a mouse pad at the moment. Put it on a cushion, man. That's why we get so much background noise from you. I'm shocked. Does G teach you nothing? Okay. Shall we crack on to the games? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. This is one that both of us have played. It's Paris New Eden from Matago. Two to four players, 45 minutes long. Designed by Florian Grenier and Ludovic Blanc. Strangely enough, it's an apocalyptic setting. I hadn't thought of that until I just read it out there. But this is a, a vegetation-based apocalypse where suddenly all the greenery has grown wild and taken over Europe and taken over the big cities the mechanism is that you are doing a dice draft in order to set up your own sort of home base where you're bringing people in for you 
And the dice are rolled. They have custom dice, six different faces on them that show different types of people. And they're put out in different locations on the board. And every turn, you take a die from a location. And not only do you get to keep the dice to use later in the round, but also you get to take the action off the location. What you're going to use those dice for is to basically, you're going to look at different types of buildings. There are five different types after everyone's drafted all the dice. And whoever's got the strongest strength in dice plus supplementary tokens you can take if you take dice from a certain area is going to get first choice of however many buildings are available. And unless you're playing two-player, there are fewer buildings available than there are players in the game. And Sean, I'm going to kick him before I even go through all the rules, but the first point of discussion is that it is a dice-drafting game. But to me, and unusually... The dice draft is almost less important when I'm making my decisions than the supplementary action that I get with it. So when you're drafting a dice rolling, you are really got an eye on the, the latter part of the round when you're doing the auctions for the buildings, etc. Like the initial hit is trying to get those additional tokens. Like the, the baseball bat is really important. Trying to get in on the missions is really important. So... There's that dual aspect to the game, which initially, when I first saw it being ran through by Rado, etc., and being touted for Essen last year, it really interested me. So the sort of things that you're thinking about when you're doing that, you are going to be able to get, like I said, extra people, but the extra tokens that you get, the difference in them is that they will hang around, they'll be persistent, and they're going to help you through the rest of the game because the dice that you draft will just go, which is one of the reasons why yeah you're thinking about them but they're not as important because those people that you get that go on they'll help you in your bid for the building initially but also they will then come into your your hideout and they will be available for missions now there are three missions available on each round and they all require certain sets of equipped people so the six different dice faces show medics show fighters and they show farmers and they show all-rounders and different things and different missions will want a different combination of those people. Not only does that mean that the dice are not persistent, but it also means that you're building up to score your points, and the point scoring comes from the secondary actions as much as it does from the dice. The funny thing about the scoring is, though, that at the end of each round, you'll set either missions to complete and also the ability to feed all the people that you have in all these builders you've drafted, and by taking tokens and the buildings, have people written on their pieces of equipment to fulfill the missions. But if you don't, do that unlike in other games you think of a mission if i don't do it i'm going to get punished in this one you just don't score points and feeding at the each end of each of the four rounds you don't get punished if you don't feed and it feels very forgiving but strange you just score lots of points if you can feed them sean and they've clearly made a deliberate design choice here where we're not going to hit you for not doing things you're just not going to score as many points i think that's one of the ways ronan that this one is really quite in unintuitive when you when you grasp this i'm i'm struggling to explain things in this game and even listening to you i'm struggling to think back because i've only played the game once and that one play i just didn't know what direction to go in i didn't know where i should be what dice i should be taking what tokens i should be taking nothing in the game just screams okay this is like a normal game oh yeah yeah okay i picked that up from that game because as you say you don't get hit for not feeding your people 
you don't really know the importance of some of the dice or the auctions, some of the buildings until you've played it that once. So maybe on my second and third go, I'd start to grasp it because you and Rachel absolutely doubled my points in the game. But if initially, it's a really hard one to grasp. Is it going to be hard to grasp though just because you're expecting it to use the shared gaming language and to follow conventions? Do you think that if you were a new gamer who wasn't as set in their ways as we are, it would be as hard to grasp? Or is it just that you're having to reset what you think you know about games? I think there is an element of that, road, And I think maybe not setting your ways is probably uh, going to be a benefit to this. But I think the game in itself is a little bit of a, a, a big step for a new gamer to take. I think there's quite a lot going on there with the auctions and the drafting and the picking the right people and the missions. I think there's a lot thrown in there. I'm going to pick you up and say, I don't think there's a lot thrown in there. I think it's quite hard to score points. Okay. Elaborate. <laughs> well, <laughs> I just think it's quite hard to score points. You have to play well to score points. The missions are quite hard. As you go through the four rounds, you require a lot of people who have got equipment. And especially the feeding, although it's non-punishing, it is cutthroat. And you can score a lot of points if you've got enough farmers and cans, because you get cans from a particular area when you draft a die, it comes with a can. If you've got enough of those, you can get a lot of points from it. But it becomes more difficult because inevitably over each round, you get more and more people in, you're trying to take buildings, you can do things. One aspect of that I think is the most cutthroat, Sean, is that there are very few buildings that have lots of farmers on them. There's, I think there's only one with three farmers on. If they come out, if you do not get on them early, because it snowballs and whether you can feed and you're getting more and more people in, you yeah. can drop behind in farmers and find it very, very difficult to catch up. And suddenly, I mean, there's only three ways of scoring points. It's doing the missions, it's feeding your people, and then it's the, the cards, which we'll talk about in a sec. If that's one of those completely out the window if you don't get farmers early. So with that in mind, do you think the game is kind of funneled into very few scoring opportunities and are you going to be doing the same thing over and over again i do but because it's only 45 minutes long and because you can't really set your path out before you start playing you can attempt to but if you suddenly in round one you look at it and you go i'm not going to win that big farmer card right i now have to concentrate on missions and or, or possibly on those cards because what you do is there are cards you can draft again you draft them from taking dice from a certain area within the city you get to take two and choose one they'll either give you buildings you can build if you have enough of a certain type of person tinkers in your in your setup or they give you end game scoring now you can try and rinse those but all the end game scoring requires that you have other stuff anyway so so sort of the cards almost tie into the strategy of doing the missions because often they ask you to have lots of medicine or lots of books cool. and then the, the feeding is almost a completely separate strategy so i think you have to be aware that if i if i'm not hitting one early i'm gonna have to switch and do the other one so there are two main paths but it is a quick game you talked about moving on to the the sort of the private mission card so you've got the public mission goals that I feel, to, to a smaller degree, I feel that can, can sort of fall in your lap a little bit. But certainly, going through those cards is, is, a, is a very definite strategy. And some of them can just fall nicely in your lap. If you're lucky with the card draw, that can really help. I, I think you're right. And it's the same thing with regards to everything throughout the game. The three missions are available, two are going to get cancelled every round, so one will come in. And you cannot be good in all three areas that might be required for missions. 
Mm. And sometimes the other players will just cancel the missions that you didn't want to do anyway, leaving you free to take other actions. So there are definite ways in which, you know, there are swings and roundabouts and it can just drop your way sometimes, mate. The only other thing I want to bring up before we go the sum up on this one, Ronan, is uh, I don't think it's for two players. Uh, I think I've looked on BGG, there's lots of complaints about the two-player game. Uh, some of the buildings are really overpowered. You've talked about that three farmer. If one player gets that and the other player doesn't, maybe that's a sort of uh, they're on, on a course to victory. The, the the baseball bat is supposed to be is quite overpowering in a two-player game, maybe. So you mentioned the baseball bat. What the baseball bat does is when you're bidding for buildings or showing who's got the biggest strength of buildings, if you have the baseball bat, which gets drafted by one player every round, you win all ties. So it is very powerful. But the other choices there are to go first in the round, so you get first draft, which is also very powerful. The other choice while you're there is to get the heroine, which automatically covers sort of one part of a mission for you. That does a completely equipped person, which can make the difference for a lot of points. So we've seen an area where there's lots of powerful things, but I agree with you that in a two-player game, the baseball bat is going to be crazy. I think this is a strictly three- or four-player game. So for me, Harris, I'm judging this on one play. So although there was enough interest to make me want to just try it one more time, at the moment... All the interest in this game was for me was in the the bidding and the guessing what everybody else was after or that would bid when you're bidding for those buildings. The rest of the game I found quite confusing, but also quite bland and a little repetitive. We were going after the same things over and over again and we had our courses and it just became a bit much, even at that 45 minute an hour mark, I, I it still got a little bit boring for me. So... Not a game that I'm desperate to play again, but I wouldn't mind confirming that I don't particularly like it, Ronan. I am mildly warmer than you are on it. I think it's decent. <laughs> I think it's quick. I think it's pleasant. I quite like the aesthetic. It at least looks different. I'm not sure that I love it, but it looks different anyway. It has its own look. The fact that it doesn't follow gaming conventions mean that it's strangely hard to grok. So it can be like a... 25 minute learn to play a 45 minute game the first time you play and then every time you're teaching it it is slightly hard to teach as well i think parish new eden's worth a try i think that it will resonate with certain players i think that of the people i've played it with i've had one person really like it a lot of people in the middle and one person really dislike it and sean was one of that milan somewhere in the middle him slightly more towards the negative end of it which is perfectly valid so I wouldn't rush out to play it, but if it was on the table, I'd give it another go. Cool, cool. And the, the people on it look like Terence and Philip from South Park. But what kind <laughs> of is the on. wind? <laughs> Don't kick the baby. So we are moving on to the new pretty on the market. It's Tangard and designed by Francesco Testini and Perluca Zizi. Coming from Thundergriff Games. The backstory on this one is the Tang Dynasty was considered the first golden age of the classical and now iconic Chinese gardens. Players are going to act as imperial garden designers and they're going to be called on to build the most incredible gardens whilst balancing all the elements of nature. The three main things that you're going to do in Tang Garden, you're going to play a landscape tile, very similar to every other landscape uh, tile laying game. You've got to match terrain to terrain and roads to roads and paths to pathway, etc. The terrain in this one are forest, water and rock. Uh, you've also got paths that are going to do different things on these and walls are going to block things in. 
That dog's about to kill you, by the way. You should probably look behind you quick and make sure you're safe. Just blocking things in and fulfilling like an area of forest that is completely surrounded is going to score you extra points and actions. There are also decorations that you're going to place. There are bridges, there are flowers, there are birds and fish, there are trees and there are pavilions. And they're going to be placed on the board for scoring opportunities later on. Lastly, optionally, if you are able to, you are able to place a character for end of game points. And this very much depends on where they are looking at, because they want to look at certain landscapes which are placed on the edge of the board. And they also want to look at all the things that you've placed on there for the pavilions and flowers, etc. They're going to score you extra points. The characters also have a dual purpose. They are going to give you an ongoing bonus while you have them. So when you get another character, you make a choice which one goes on the board to score points and which one you're going to keep and to use their ongoing power. Ronan, we're going to start off with the obvious bit. I think even you would have to admit that this is a very beautiful game. I'm I'm slightly more worried about the fact that dog's going to kill you, but okay, we'll carry on. Yeah, next door's dog. I've tried to shoot it many, many times. Shoot it? Don't shoot the dog. I have to shoot it. It's the most annoying dog in the history okay. of dogs. You're coming, of course, really badly here, so I'm going to start talking about uh, war games again. The other side have got an Alsatian. He's beautiful. Don't. He killed me in a, in a heartbeat. Okay. <laughs> it looks amazing. When you get it out of the box, it's a big old box as well. It's a big old lump of a game. When you get it out, it's got all the bits and bobs. It's got a very strong aesthetic. You certainly helps with the feeling that you are in there creating this beautiful garden. And I would say that the whole idea of those gardens, not that I know much about it, is that you're trying to balance all the different things. And that ties through to the scoring and the way you play the game, that you're trying to push all the three elements up, water and forest and earth. And you're trying to, whenever you're scoring one thing, you have to get more than one of it. So you have to pair up the birds and the fish or the two different types of flower suits. It's all about balance. And I like the fact that they've gone for an aesthetic that ties through into how you score points in it. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't really talk very much about the surrounding. So the surrounding landscape, so you're looking at the vista going on, there's certain things that the characters like to look at. So one of them is an architect, and he likes to see his buildings being constructed. The emperor likes to see dragon memorials, so he he really likes dragons. I like dragons, and he (laughs) likes to look at them in in his vista. And it's it's some really... (laughs) I like dragons. There's some really interesting ones is in the Empress. <laughs> if she she obviously doesn't get along with her husband very well and he's obviously having an affair with the courtesan because allegedly. she gets not allegedly <laughs> it seems that way because she scores a straight up amount of points, but they get reduced if the Emperor or the courtesan are in her line of sight. Which is quite an interesting... Bit better than Knuckles, isn't it? Okay. And that, so that's a way you can mess with people. Now, I played a two-player game at Natalie, and I thought, and I said to you, it's, it's kind of like Carcassonne with a few extra bits just thrown in, but it's very, very light and very serene. And you were like, oh, cool, cool. And then we started playing with you and Rachel. Didn't end up being very serene, did it? You did missell this game to me. <laughs> okay. How long does it take to teach Carcassonne? I don't know, about five minutes. How long does it take to teach Tang Garden? Well, me, it took me two games. Okay. But if you were teaching it new, 
How long would it take to teach Tangarden? Good 25 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. Four or five times as long. I don't know where you got the idea was that this is as light as Cargo's on. These because we played light. it super. We didn't get in each other's faces. We just kept away from each other. She went in one direction in the garden. I went in another direction, and we just played probably not the game. We we just did our own little thing in the corner, which the, is the what game we tend to do. is the game. You play it as you <laughs> wish to play it. There's no one can tell you there's a right or wrong way to play a game. What happened was, you you taught me the game, and I looked at it and went, all the points are in the cards, and every time they put down a tile that has a space that I can put something, then that's an opportunity for me to score, because you have to lay the tile, and then everyone else gets a turn. And if you've got a place that a tree can go, guess what? I'm going to rinse the deck and try and get a tree, because then it's close to you, and you can't score points with it, because the point scoring for the actually laying the tiles is very, very low. You know, you build up, you get a couple of coins here and there, if you get very far along the track, it does give you a chance to change your characters around, but the most of them you can have is like four, maybe, and then they're scoring you five or ten points each, whereas if you rinse in the cards, you can score maybe double that. (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> but I think if, you, if you're if you clever with the characters and you don't get messed with, I suppose, then the characters, if, if you had three of them out scoring 15 points a pop, 45 points is way That's, over half it's of not what possible. you're looking at. It's not possible in a multiplayer game <laughs> to do that. Because it's, cause, yeah, well, I suppose with the Empress, nine, she gets nine points, and if she's looking at six... No, no, it's not just then, that. It's that if, say, someone wants to look at waterfalls or whatever, and you're saying right, I can get four or five waterfalls on these five pieces. You're not going to. Because Ooh. people have to lay landscape tiles. It doesn't cost them anything to put those those views into play. As you lay a tile in a certain spot, you then for free put one of those views in play. And obviously, if I'm looking at yours and you like waterfalls and you're looking at three waterfalls, guess what's going down next? Not a waterfall. I don't think <laughs> you can score loads of points of characters. I think there's a limit to what you can do with them. Yeah, uh, the game in itself is is incredibly interactive because everything that somebody else is doing, you're looking at from uh, right. What are they getting from it? What can I get from it? And how do I stop it? So you're you're constantly studying the board. Yes, and here's the massive problem with the game because <laughs> while we started on the looks, yeah, it looks amazing, but it is so much form over function. Is such oh, the iconography way. is hidden. It's not much, just the it? iconography. It's the whole thing is form over function. I can't tell what your characters want. There's no way of telling what the symbols are because all the symbols are tiny for looking yeah. at those views. They're tiny on the views. There is a bit of colour coding with very similar colours in some cases. Like, tell me how, how close you have to be to tell the difference between the two different types of pagodas that you can score. Oh, yeah, no, that was because the architect wants a pagoda that's being built and somebody else wants a, an already built pagoda and there's a tiny scaffolding. And the, the, the iconography is absolutely microscopic. You're talking like it's, millimetres wide yeah. on a big board then, yeah. where people have cards in front of them that are millimetres high icons that are detailed. They're not like a symbology, like a very simple, like an alpha sign or whatever. They're actual tiny pictures of things. The issue is I think you have to be quite open about what you're doing. And you and in the game, it kind of goes against the spirit because you've got to be quite sneaky in, in the game itself. You set things up for yourself. And if you announce, like, my character wants to look at that one there that's on that pile on the top there. So everyone's going to go, well, okay, we're going to choose that. So 
I think individual people, you, you kind of have to go around to everyone and say, well, what does your character want to look at? All right, you okay. just pick up a piece of scenery and go, do you want any of them? Yes. Great. It's going there. <laughs> but, and <laughs> going from, from that then, the facing of your character. So, okay, they're a figure. You put a face in. There's no arrow or line or anything to show which way they're facing. But you can work out kind of where a figure's facing. It doesn't, some of them go within cardboard pagodas. Fully within. <laughs> Firstly, I don't remember they're in there. Secondly, which way are they facing? Is it a secret? What all the choice is that? This fella might be scoring no points, might be scoring, like you say, 15 for some features in front of it and the things. That, I don't know. I can't tell. It's just a bad choice for a game component. It is, yeah. I, I agree. Like, it is... They've gone for the looks, really, as you said. They've gone for the looks. They haven't really thought about the playability of the components and the iconography, uh, which is a definite definite minus to the game, for sure. I am torn on how I feel about this. The games we've played have been pretty tight. The more we've played, the tighter it's got in scoring. It does come down to card draw, to me, for majority of scoring. If you happen to get that fourth or fifth different type of tree as you cycle through the deck... You're going to score a lot of points for that. If you don't, you don't. If you happen towards the end to get a lucky pairing, great. For how long and thinky this is, that's something you have to be aware of. To a certain degree, but how many how many different aspects of this game did I accuse you of being lucky at? Like you can't have been lucky at absolutely everything. I think is there's a lot of actual gameplay and being clever about what you do within the game. I think it's not completely down to luck. Okay, a luck but when players are playing well, on the last round around, if I draw three cards and don't get the thing that I need for my pair because the deck has been rinsed by that point and it goes to the next player and they do get the thing they need for a pair and that scores them the extra points to win the game, you're just going back to Rachel Winson you in the last round. <laughs> that's true, but it's not something that's that unusual because towards the end, you've kind of done everything you want to do on your board. You're looking at it going, I'm not going to get these nine extra steps it takes for me to start scoring points or get another character out on the board. So I'm very reluctant to lay the Enscape tiles towards the end. I am rinsing that deck. And then it becomes a bit of fishing. It becomes a bit of, am, am I going to get that thing I need which will give me the points before the game runs out? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have to note it. For me, I think it's a very tactical game with each tile choice. As I said already, it's an exercise. What what can I do for me and what don't I want to do for my opponents? I think it's a clever game. Ronan, I don't know which way you're going to go with this one. So do you want to sum up on Tang Garden for us? Sean, I don't know which way I'm going to go on this one. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed playing it. The really, the biggest issue for me, it's not even that card draw. It's the graphic design and the fact that that adds to the difficulty of play it adds that i don't know what people are scoring and that it is an issue but it's quite a big issue because it just adds that layer of frustration above the, all the thinking and all the tactics and all the oh suddenly you want that and i want this oh oh you've put down a blue area okay should i go for that or not the tile laying again it, it reminds me back to paris that the dice drafting in paris is almost secondary the tile laying in this is almost secondary because it's not how you're going to score the majority of your points. I think that if it had a little bit of streamlining all around and had tidied up the graphic design, it could have been a really big hit, because the core of it is a very fine game. It just has those rough edges you need to be aware of. I like it. 
And I'm happy to play Tangarden again. I don't know how to how many plays that frustration would ball over and I'll go, I've had enough of it. But but there's a good few plays in that box for me. So I think it's a hit, Tangarden. Yeah, I completely and utterly agree with the iconography and the design choices in placing some of those uh, people into into the pavilions, etc. But what I get out of the game is that it's a very tactical game. Each tile choice, as I've already said, is an exercise in what I can do for me, but also what don't I want to do for my opponents. So I'm constantly engaged. I think it's a clever game with a lot of beauty, and I think the beauty may hide its mean little heart, but in a good way. I really do enjoy Tangarden, as fiddly as it is. So the next game we're going to move on to is one of the most discussed games from last year. It's King's Dilemma from Horrible Guild, 3-5 to five player, 60 minutes, designers Hjalmar Hack and Lorenzo Silva. So King's Dilemma is a game designed to be played over multiple sessions, in which each player takes control of their own noble family, and each session corresponds to the reign of one monarch within this kingdom, and you're attempting over the course of the whole campaign to promote your own family. In terms of mechanism, every round, a card gets revealed, and it's a story card, and it's going to have some sort of a situation on which all the different families are then going to decide they're going to vote on the outcome. The way you vote is with power, and one of the two resolutions is going to get more power voted on it, and then we're going to read the result, and there'll be different outcomes from that story card. So it's going to affect how the kingdom is developing. There are tracks for the kingdom for this reign. They mostly reset between reigns, but there's some lingering over of things. You might increase the prosperity or decrease the morale or the agriculture or the military or the religious strength, and there's these different areas going up and down. The story will indicate the possible outcomes, but they'll do it via flavor text. So you're trying to work out when it says... In terms of the voting, you can choose to vote on the either side of the debate, or you can choose to pass. When you pass, you can either claim all the power that was used for the winning vote last time round to power you up, and you split that amongst all the powers who do that. Or you can choose to take the hammer and be the judge. And then if there's ever a tie, you then are going to decide which way it goes. And you decide all things that need deciding from there. And that's where part of the diplomacy comes in, because you can get offers of power and money from the other families to make you go this way or that depending upon what decisions you have to make before the next story card comes up now in terms of what you're trying to do overall your family is tied into long-term goals they have things that they want to happen so for example i played as the agricultural heartland of the kingdom therefore i always want to look after agriculture and i want to look after trade and by doing different things i get to tick off long-term goals on my family which overall will give me slightly more power each game will give me special abilities and will score me points the other way of scoring points over the course of the game is that you get short-term traits so for each particular reign it's as if you have a new head of your family and they have a particular trait to them that might be particularly greedy or they might be particularly power hungry or they might be particularly religious so therefore you've got short-term goals to also complete as these stories are going on and you're looking to see how much power to spend what other families to work with at certain times and what general direction you're trying to steer this in. Now, as you go through the story cards, there are different threads to the story and you basically you'll open up packs of cards. It comes with dozens of packs of cards and you'll take them out and you'll shuffle them into the possible story deck. And as you unveil them, the story will develop and the choices you make will lead to different stories coming out and the kingdom, as I say, will go over particular tracks and down different paths and different paths will be closed off to you depending upon what you've chosen what to do 
Okay. Each reign is going to be limited by a certain amount of time. There are cards that come out have a mortality rate on them. Or if the kingdom ever becomes completely stable, then that monarch retires and says, cool, I'm done. I'll pass it on to whoever's next. Or if it becomes completely unstable, then they get deposed. And depending upon which of those two has happened or if the, the monarch has died, then points are going to be handed out in different ways. Now, there are two different ways you score points. You score I can't remember them, but I think they're called glory points and ambition points. And they're kind of points if you've helped the kingdom generally do well and be a positive place. And then ambition points are if you maybe undermine them a bit, but take a more personal power for your family. There's also things whereby if you have put the most power into a decision, a sticker can go onto the board in a particular element and you have taken responsibility for that decision. And it can end up of having boosted one of these tracks or reduced them and you've sort of taken ownership. So if I've taken a decision and put most power in there to reduce our military strength, our military strength will be reduced for the next few games. And when bad things happen on military, if we get invaded, I'll be the one personally to blame and that I will then suffer some of the penalty for that. So you have to own some of your decisions. The overall scoring for the whole campaign, you don't know what it is. It's going to depend upon how the kingdom has been led. And for each of the six different areas, as you get towards the end of the campaign, you have a resolution and you actually put a different scoring sticker into the book. And when all six of them are in play, that's going to be the end of the campaign. You will then see how you resolve everything that you've done and whether your glory or ambition points are going to be more valuable or whether it's going to be a balance of them. And therefore, you're trying to read all the way through. And the game all the way through is not so much about making hard mechanical decisions on we need three more of these or one less of that. You don't know that. You don't know exactly how it's going to end up. And you certainly don't know what futures you're making available to you. It's more about getting a judgment and a feeling and thinking like, hold on, does this sound like a good idea for my area? See if there's a decision to be made on the northern borders and I'm a central family. Maybe I'm not so fast by that one. Maybe I'll just play that one to get some more power. But if the decision directly affects me or my ports or my trade, maybe that's when I need to come in. But I won't know until we resolve it all. So it's not a game to play mechanically and specifically looking for actual scoring of points each game. Although you are scoring points each game and they will give you glory and ambition, but you don't know how it's going to go. It's much more of a feeling. Sean, a feeling, an experience as much as a game. King's Dilemma. <laughs> okay, so I haven't played this one. I really wasn't interested until all the buzz started around it. Obviously, Tom Vassell was a, a big exponent of how great it was. And you started playing it, Ronan, and were just talking about it. I'm not saying if you liked it or not, but you were talking about it a lot. Doesn't look great. But it does seem to be all about the narratives generated and the choices when, made. When you say it doesn't look great, do you mean go on? I think it looks it looks quite sparse. Quite you talk about the actual looks of the game itself. Yeah, yeah. Once you open the box, it's not you don't go wow. It's um, probably the opposite of Tangarden. Like we open Tangarden, you go, oh my god, that's that's gorgeous. And you look at this one, you go, oh, oh, is that all it is? But I suppose most of the the goodness is in those decks of cards. So that's that's when it all starts to come to life. But there is some great artwork on those cards, by the way. Cool, cool. I'm glad to hear it. The one thing that people have said to me about this game is don't play it 
as if you're a gamer. Play it as if you're a character in the game because you'll get so much more out of it. How how do you respond to that, Ronan? Do you agree, disagree? It is a solid eye from this party. I vote five power <laughs> for playing as a character and for fun. And I think uh, Tom Vassler said the same. He's he's had to make some choices that actually made him a bit sick because there were things that he completely rebels against in real life. But to stay in character, he had to make those choices. In all honesty, Sean, there are many differences between me and Tom. And one of them is that <laughs> when I have to make those choices, I'm having a chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> you, but you make him in real life, though. All the time. <laughs> Definitely. The players who were playing this and they wanted a clear path on how to win, what's the best tactics, how am I going to win as my family, had the least fun. Now, I think everyone we played with enjoyed it, but they are the ones that possibly, until they got into the flow, were a bit frustrated. And what was quite funny is that we had, we had someone who was getting frustrated with other players because they're like, why are you doing that? If you look at this track, it does this. And they're like, because that's what my family would do. Because three games ago, that person made that decision and my family remembers and we've got a vendetta. But it's going to cost you points. We have a vendetta. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you need to be. And you can almost make it sound like all the decisions are on the players and the players are making the game. The storylines, the developments, the ambiguity, the... oh. Hold on, does that sound like a good idea? But but it actually is what my family wants. Are really, really well done. And I think one of the things that Tom says is about moral choices. I'm not sure that I would classify these within this setting as a moral choice, but that's kind of the way to describe it. You're going on, is this for the greater good or for the personal good? And those are the decisions that you're making. And it's very unusual to be forced to think like that during a game. Very good. So... Having not played it, I've done what we usually do, Ronan. I've I've dipped into Board Game Geek and picked up a random, normally negative comment. So uh, here we go. This game is so boring. I just played it twice, but I can't say the mechanics don't help in getting involved in the story. The secret agendas affect the game story and the players passing to get money and power get you nowhere. Instructions are not well written. And to actually start the game and play it, you have to go over 33 pages constantly for the first two games. What a disappointment. So you just say one person didn't like it. I was, I was <laughs> something funny or an insight from there. All right, you didn't like it, mate. Uh, I think the rule book was long. It was long. And I, lucky enough, had the promo set, which is what I did a video from, which helped me. But... It's because I think they're trying to explain that there is a way this re- this will resolve. There is a game here. They're almost trying to justify it in the rule book, but it is a long rule book. But I, it's not hard to learn at all, man. In fact, I didn't teach it. I just put it out, pulled a card, went, you're running a family, brought people to choose their families, got people to choose their roles. So there you go. That's who you are for this game. Where am I going? No one knows. We're about to go follow a story. No one knows where it's going to go. Pulled out the first card. Right. What does everyone want to do? And obviously... I think it helped everyone sort of then start going, I don't know, let's go this, let's do that, let's do that. And that's the spirit that you have to play in, right? The one thing I will say about negative that the timeline is really screwy in that you can sort of, I don't know, rescue a young boy from a situation and that card then goes in the story deck and four reigns of a monarch later, the young boy appears at court. So what? <laughs> I'm not sure they got that bit fully sorted out, but as you're kind of guessing, the rest of it was pretty good. 
Sean, any final thoughts before I sum up so far on King's Dynasty? Only, only that I, I own the game now. I'm, I'm desperate to get together enough people to play it regularly with. And I think when I was looking through those comments, uh, this one was one of the rare negative comments. So that's why it wasn't uh, as entertaining as maybe some of the others are, because it's actually gone over quite well. It's very high rating, and I'm looking forward to playing it, Ronan. One of the best gaming experiences of 2019. I love it. So we need to say about King's Dilemma, it's fantastic. If you can get five people together, do it. It's really, really... And, and each individual game is less than an hour long, usually. So you can actually fire through a few scenarios in a quick burst that would be a normal gaming night and be like, hold on, we're four or five games in here. This is we, We've actually got some story going on. It's not slow and syrupy. and yeah. you know, three, It is snappy, snappy turns. Snappy. Snappy stories. Talking about Snappy, we're gonna. This is proper Snappy because this is a game we, that we have reviewed in the past. It's a game that I constantly talk about. It was in my top ten of all time, but they've done a second edition. So I just wanted to just go through some of the uh, changes that they've made, and I've played a couple of games of it, Ronan. It's Eclipse, second Dawn for the Galaxy, designed by Tuco Tacolilio, and coming from Lotapolet.fi. So, what do you know about the changes, Ronan? Uh, are you excited? Are you not excited? Yeah. <laughs> what are the changes, Sean? Oh, uh, there's lots of changes, but so obviously there's a, a component change. There's lots. Of, they've thrown a bit more miniatures at it, and comes basically the ship pack one, which was a, an addition that uh, came separately in the old version. One of the main things that they've gone for is streamlining running, and I know that's something that you you'd like in some of these longer, older games. They've streamlined, they've, they've dropped around off it. When you're battling um, other alien ships on planets, instead of having to do two actions, battle the ship, defeat it, and then on your next go claim the planet, you can immediately claim it. So it just speeds up things a little bit. And they've they've made some revisions to the balancing of the game. Right? And that's the main things. And they've, they've cured some of the problems. There was always the old problem where uh, there was the one strategy, you just got a certain type of, I think, photon missiles or something. And it was the glass cannons. Yeah, the glass cannon. They stacked up on those, Ronan, and it was a surefire way to, to win your battle. And whoever got the most of those, the quicker, is was going to win the game. I think they've, they've balanced that off a little bit. Lovely. I mean, there's only two questions here, really, Sean, about the whole game. We know Eclipse. <laughs> we know it's a fantastic game. It's in both our top 50s, maybe, or it might be just outside my now. I don't know. And that's what's new. I think what you've gone over is a bit of streamlining, is there enough mm-hmm. new in it? They've they fixed some of the problems, Ronan. They fixed there was a problem with the when you had diplomatic relations with another player, you weren't allowed to move through their hexes or something. But now you can, and they've just just eked it to make it a better game. The only thing that they've changed that I really don't like is they've added to the player elimination. So the only way to get eliminated from Eclipse, which I would never adhere to, I'd always give someone a starting tile somewhere else, was uh, when you became bankrupt. Now, if all your ships are removed from the board, you are eliminated from the game. House rule, that is never going to happen in my house because I hate game elimination. But and I, everything I else know, is tweaked. Eclipse can be a long game, man. If I get eliminated 90 minutes in, I'm not starting again. I'm just going to be behind the curve. I'm going to go read a book. All right, optional. <laughs> optional elimination. The, the only really, look, I love Eclipse. The only real issue for me here is, from what you're telling me, from what I've read, the changes don't necessarily warrant 
a whole new edition. There are people who have bought the first edition, have bought both expansions for it, and a ship upgrade pack, and have invested mm-hmm. a couple of hundred quid in it. And now the new version, which is what everyone wants to play, will then cost them another hefty lump of money. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely, it's it's a big investment. So the question, you know, why isn't there an upgrade kit? That is something that I think is a valid question and possibly there should have been an upgrade kit. I think it did come up in the in the Kickstarter campaign. I can't remember exactly what the reason for they gave for not including it. I think another thing that they have included is, is those the game trays. I know you're not fussed either way about game trays, but I think they make life so much easier. You just take out your tray and all your components are in it and it, it helps you with your scoring. It holds your cubes. It holds everything for you. I, I absolutely love stuff like that. Well worth another 80 quid then. <laughs> absolutely. Eclipse <laughs> is fantastic. Sure, if you don't have it, buy this version. If you have the old one, I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay here's a fun kill it one which we discussed in our Essen treasure hunts it's Vilnius from Austria Spieler two to three player 90 minute cooperative game coming from Malta Meineke so the players are defending the city of Vilnius in the 14th century which is being attacked by Teutonic Knights the way they're going to do that is by building up a grid of buildings which represents their sector of Vilnius that they're in charge of they're going to recruit troops as well Now, why are they recruiting troops? Because each round, as you're building up and spending cards out of your hand for money and to make buildings from a central pile of buildings and troops, you're going to have these enemy cards being drawn. They are going to build up a certain attack strength. As you build up your city, you build up a defense strength. Once the attack strength of the Teutonic Knights over a number of rounds builds up so that it's higher than your city's defense strength, an attack will take place. Now, you will know beforehand whether they're going to attack directly your part or the central area of Vilnius. If more than one of those columns of troops, everyone has their own column of troops coming to attack them, goes for Vilnius, they combine into a mass attack, and then you're kind of in big trouble. Each of the troops that are building up for the Teutonic Knights have got particular strengths and weaknesses, which are shown by icons. So therefore, as you recruit, you're looking to spend your resources in order to get specific troops to counteract those that are coming directly towards you. When the battle phase takes place, and again, it's not every round, it's only when the strength of the attackers is high enough, you combo off the cards against each other, looking to knock out as many of the troops as possible. Any that are remaining, if they're attacking your area of the city, will burn some of your buildings and you'll lose them. You'll lose units that you've used to combat other units. But also, when they're attacking Vilnius, those that are left over, will damage Vilnius itself. And Vilnius is a set amount of health points, and if the health points of Vilnius ever goes below zero, then you've lost the game. If you survive all the attacks, then you've won the game. If you're in an attack, you're strong enough to have remaining troops left. You can send them out to take control of provinces for you, which will bring certain province cards back into your hand, which will generate certain resources, which will trigger off certain buildings you've built, which will allow you to make more gold and get more resources to get more troops and better buildings. So you're constantly building up your area. It gets reduced. You're constantly building up your defenses while the attackers build up, and they come in different waves, specific waves. Now, Sean, we talked about Vilnius. We said it was an ambitious sounding game with possibly not the biggest market in the world. Well, the first issue I have on it, Sean, is that there is a blatant lie on that box. (laughs) Go on, then. What's what's the blatant lie? It says English rules included. (laughs) There is a pamphlet of English words (laughs) under the title rulebook. 
to stretch that into the existence of a rule book would be somewhat beyond my ability. <laughs> that was that was one of my points um, garnered from BGG was uh, the rules could be more clear and easier to read. I was going to ask you about that. They're Obviously, shocking. they could. <laughs> Absolutely shocking. To the point where once I worked out how to play, I went, "This is not that complicated. This shouldn't have taken me three goes through to learn." I considered rewriting the rule book. <laughs> But then I realised that I'm really bad on details and that I definitely mess certain things up. So I decided not to. It's <laughs> not easy. But this one is out not to do it. Okay. One of the things that you notice when you start playing is that you do not have big strategic width you can do. When you're building the city, you start from a certain area and there are symbols and each building goes in a particular place. And as you're building along, you must build prior buildings to open up a symbol so you can place the next building. So you cannot put like a trading house down immediately. You must have a warehouse before you can get to a trading house. So you are very, everyone's grid is going to look very similar. There are slight things you can do to change it, but you're all going to be building a very similar looking city. So Ronan, you're, you're kind of going down a path where you're sounding like maybe every game is going to be the same because if, if you get similar outcomes all the time is it is every game going to go down that same path yes there's going to be similarities to each game and and also within that i'm going to roll it in quick is that because when you build up certainly at least early on you're going to lose buildings so then you're building up the same buildings again and then you lose some and then you build the same buildings again the actual process of building the city again the central mechanism can feel repetitive from game to game and also Within the same game, the kind of replayability comes basically is the fact that there are different enemies coming each time. So each wave is a slightly different challenge. So you're going to be drafting in troops to face a particular challenge, not a generic one. So that's quite cool. But also you're drafting from a limited pool. So you're going to have to cooperate together within a system. The system is very tight to hold you all in, I guess, of course, to balance the game, because it's very much a Euro co-op. It's, it, you know, the theme isn't great, it's a load of beige cards. But, yeah, so it's, it swings in roundabouts, it's tight, it feels like it's well mechanically designed, but you, you're limited in what you can do. So you're talking about, okay, so it's a co-op, okay. Now, uh, it's a full information co-op, is that right? Yes, you can see everything that's in front. Uh, they might not know exactly what's in your hand. Right, okay, but... Sometimes with with full information co-ops, you get an alpha player problem. I, get, I don't allow alpha player problems. It's I know not, you don't. It's not an issue. It doesn't exist. <laughs> so the, the the one review because I think one of the issues for this game, just to go off on a tangent, is there's only 58 marked as owned on Board Game Geek. Only nine ratings on Board Game Geek. This one has flown under the radar massively. One sort of slew of comments that I could uh, drag out said that. The, the alpha player problem is not a problem because the game is complicated enough that you have to keep track of all your own stuff and you can't be too worried about what everybody else is doing. You have to have, obviously, a grasp. What do you think? The games don't have alpha player problems. Game groups do. <laughs> this is a non... I hate it. You know I hate us talking about alpha player problems. That's down to your game group. That's a human relations issue. 
Okay, if you you've have got a lots to do to, to take from what you've said, you've got lots to do, lots to think about. It's quite hard to coordinate. Every hand of cards you're looking at, it's very tight. You're not being, you're like, oh man, if I use that one gold there, I can't use it here. And you're thinking, can I risk not taking an archer now when these enemies are building up? So you've got plenty to think about to try and run two hands of someone else's. I mean, if you're trying to do that, then you're not playing the game right anyway. But uh, but the point stands that yes, it will be harder to be thinking about all those things at once. It'd be a very slow game if you're trying to do that. Okay, all I've got now is uh, it's quite a small game in that it doesn't take up a lot of real estate on the table. It's, it's just cards, isn't it? So it's quite portable. You can take it down the pub sort of thing, maybe? Mm, it's a small box. It's a small price. It's between 20 and £25 pounds available in the UK. It does take up a bit of real estate, so I'm not sure about that one. It probably fit okay. in a normal-sized pub table, but there's definitely things sprawling around the place. You can you don't need a big table to play it, but it, it's not a small, tiny footprint game. Cool. What what are your final thoughts on Vilnius, Rona? My final thoughts are that it's an odd duck of a game, <laughs> which is something that you look for. It's, it kind of it feels different to everything else, so that's kind of a good thing. I think it's very brave of Ostiaspiel to publish a two to three player long co-op that basically all comes on beige cards. It's never going to be a huge market for that. I also found it really hard to find at Essen if it was even there. I was looking for it. I didn't see it anywhere, so I don't know quite what happened there. So it missed a chance for sort of a push. The mistakes have been made, specifically with the rule book and with the usability sometimes, but you can kind of give some leeway because it's such a tiny company. I think that Vilnius is really worth a try if you like the idea of a 90-minute thinky Limited strategy, high on tactics, co-op, where you have to play well. It's Euro that is not luck on whether you're going to win or not, and you're going to lose a few times before you get any good at the game. So small market, but I think well worth a poke in that market. Very good, very good. On the other side of the scale, in, in that it's not a tiny little release that nobody knows about, is Nemesis. Designed by Adam Kwapinski and coming from Awaken Realms. Nemesis is effectively Aliens, the board game. So if you think about you waking up in uh, from your hyperspace pod and you've been asleep and there's a body has been found, it's been ripped apart apparently, and alien leftovers are there so you know that the ship has been invaded and overrun by the aliens so your characters and you've each got your own certain character with special abilities is going to be given a secret mission well you're going to be given two secret missions one's a personal mission and one's a corporate mission and you don't have to decide straight away but what you do have to do is go and explore the ship and cover because everything is hidden to you and cover all the rooms. The only things that are apparent from the first glance are the engine room and the where the, the pilot's cockpit, where, where they sit, and obviously the hibernation room that you wake up in. And it's all about exploring the room. There's a very similar noise mechanism as in Zombicide. So when you move in, you're creating noise and you're going to draw them to you. The only thing is they're not, the aliens don't start off on the board. They're going to jump out at you. And that leads to the, the atmosphere of the game. As I said about those private agendas that you have, at a certain stage in the game, you are going to have to decide what you're going to do. Now, these are things that you can say the ship needs to end up in Mars, the ship needs to end up on Earth, the ship needs to blow up, the alien queen needs to be killed and you have to destroy the nest to 
a combination of some of those factors. You have to send a message is another one. So everyone is working to slightly different agendas that you don't really know what they're working towards and you kind of have to guess as the game progresses. Ronan, I'll start off with the game is incredibly atmospheric because you are creeping through ship corridors trying not to make noise and occasionally aliens are going to jump out and frighten you i need you to clarify a question that's been burning in my uh parts <laughs> the in your parts yeah. Yeah, i'll tell you what parts could be anything my fingertips who knows who knows is the atmosphere of this game can you clarify for me because i keep getting different ideas is it aliens or alien <laughs> <laughs> it's not the one with Newt turning up and the cat and all that business. It's the first one where you are... You could just say alien rather than use 29 words for that. <laughs> so it's more the hunty, horror, leapy-outy. The hunty, horry, leapy-outy. Exactly. That, that's it, exactly. You're not shooting off loads of bullets, build packs and all that. Not really. You do run out of bullets quite quickly. Uh, bullets are a, a very... Bullets are a very precious resource. And... Yeah, you are. You're sneaking around. You me there. I'm just going to... No. I'm leaving My it in. Precious. <laughs> You've been playing this too often. It's Natalie beating this. Precious resource. The thing is that if you move into a room with somebody else, you don't make any noise because they've obviously made the noise and... I don't know what the, don't know what the thematic reason for that is. That you're moving together, I don't know, and it doesn't make as much noise because you're not making two you're, separate You're getting movements. a piggyback. You get a piggyback. There you go. <laughs> so if you move into a room with somebody else, so it encourages you to a certain degree to follow each other at the beginning, but obviously you're going to have separate things that you want to do. And it's the room. So your room that you need to get to to do one of your objectives might be the other, a complete opposite end. There's also the uh, interlocking technical corridors that reverberate around the whole ship. So if I make noise in one part of the ship, if it's got a technical corridor, and Natalie and is in the other part of the ship, and that's got a technical corridor, then I can actually alert aliens to her. It's quite funny sometimes. That's mean. That is mean. Okay. With regards to that then, where and this is, you're talking about highly rated, mate, for King's Dilemma, this has got ridiculously high range. It's in the top 40 already. Yeah. One of the complaints from people who haven't loved it as much, mm-hmm. and obviously we have to play devil's advocate on the other side when we start thinking the other of person course. loves the game, yeah. is player agency. In that while it might be an enjoyable experience, a lot of the times things are ha- just happening to you and you're rolling along and then something else happens to you and you roll along and you're not necessarily directing what's going on. Thoughts on that? I would say in the exploration phase of the game when you are really just exploring the ship and seeing what turns up i think yeah you, the only agency is well, what direction do you go and do you stay together i think once the ship is apparent and most of the rooms are available and you know what's going on i think then it starts to become more of a choice of what do you do first? Do you give away your game, what you're trying to do? Do you set up bluffs? Like you can go into the the cockpit or the bridge of the ship and maybe have a look and change the direction of the ship, but you might not care where the ship goes. Everyone else would think, oh, no, they're going, they've changed it. I need to be going to Earth. I need to Earth. And so they're all rushing up there where you pop down the bottom of the ship and stuff like that. You're just setting up these little traps and being quite cute about how you do things. So have you been playing co-op or semi-co-op? 
We have been playing what, what the game says to play, is the initial thing, is the semi-co-op, Ronan, where we both have our absolute agendas, and then you look at the end and see who's won the game, if anybody has won the game. Okay. So, so there's the definite winner. That leads me on to two different things then. Yeah. I'll start with the semi-co-op. There has been some complaints about balance in missions and that people can have the win full in their lap and others can be very difficult. Correct. <laughs> good. That's good. Absolutely, absolutely correct. Second thing then is, and it's going to be hard for you to answer actually, I thought you'd be playing co-op just because you guys like to play games co-op. So this can only be brief thoughts. Any thoughts on it as a full co-op game? I'm really enjoying the semi-co-op aspect of it, right? And that's unusual for me because I don't really like semi-co-op games very much. I think they're neither fish nor fowl, as yourself and Natalie like to say. But I, I do. I really enjoy just the, the the mystique of it and the 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 codding and the kidding and the pushing people in certain directions and not knowing exactly what somebody has. Yes, it can fall a bit flat if you both end up with the same mission pretty much and it can fall a bit flat if one of your missions is a lot easier and completely ruins the other person's mission so it's dependent on where the rooms are in the ship as well and it, there is there are all of those problems and i do agree with them but i think the the process is so good in this game that i forgive it okay last point i think before we finish off sean have you got anything else to say is it's not a cheap game again that's okay but there's a lot of plastic in there and again, I guess since people have played it a lot, Havart said maybe a bit less plastic, a bit more variety in actual gameplay and more missions or enemies or something like that, they would have preferred that balance. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, we haven't really explored it to the point where we want that much variety. But yeah, I can certainly see that. I think if you've got the Kickstarter stuff that comes with extra uh, missions and extra aliens that do different things. So if you were lucky enough to get on that campaign and had to, had the money to get on that campaign because it wasn't cheap, then fair enough. But yeah, I think if you're buying from a retail, it could get a little bit samey for sure. But the, I think the mix of the rooms and they all go out randomly and things like that, I think that keeps it a little bit fresh. Okay. So I have a stern complaint to make about you because I said quite sure. clearly I didn't want us to cover this game before I'd played it. <laughs> and I asked you to bring it down to me you're the worst person I've ever known I will certainly bring it down to you uh, <laughs> but I, I was running out of games <laughs> so I had to include it okay there's a lot to grapple with here there's vibes that it's the best game ever that obviously it's not the best game ever I think that's going to come from any game where everyone seems to say at certain times it will fall flat especially in semi-co-op you and I, we said all along, have got different tolerance levels for games being amazing versus falling flat and where that balance lies. And I'm just going to need to play this a few times to find out where that balance is. I'm sure I have great games of it. I'm fairly sure I have flat games of it. Where it ends up is in the lap of the nemesis gods. <laughs> Indeed. I think for you, Ronan, you will like it if your first game is a, is a blockbuster. If it's not, I think you'll you'll see the flaws of me. Oh no, yeah, I'm shallow. I'll just judge it on one yeah. game. No, I, no, I'm shallow. I hear that. I hear. I can hear the undertone of what you're saying, Sean. Yeah, yeah, you hear that, bad boy. So incredibly atmospheric, lots of replayability, 
love the player action mechanism, which we haven't really talked about, where your choices are made by spending cards that are also your choices. So you've got to be very, very mindful of what you're spending and what you're keeping. And if you've got enough cards to pay for them, really love that mechanism. The game absolutely is fragile. I can't, I can't argue with that. You can have amazing games and you can have some that are not as exciting, but I really, really enjoy the process of playing the game just moving around the board and and the tension of those aliens might popping up at any time even if there isn't a blockbuster finish i'm a big fan of nemesis beautiful let's move on shall we to the euro opposite of your flavorsome game <laughs> glenn moore 2 fun tales designer matthias kramer two to four players 90 minutes sean off the bat there is something deeply, deeply wrong with me. <laughs> Are you going to complain about the theme of this? Uh, there's something wrong with me. I've tried. I've tried Isle of Skye. <laughs> I've tried Do you just not like Scottish people? Is that what it is? I love Scotland. I like some Scottish people. I've got some Scottish family. <laughs> some of them are a bit angry. <laughs> I've, I've got a good mate at work who's Scottish. Don't make me do this. Don't make me justify myself. This particular weird 18th century Scottish theme that is so specific about sheep, wood, whiskey. I, I can't get on with it. I've tried, mate. I, I backed this on Kickstarter. I got it in full hope that the theme would be okay. I just... Well, normally you like wood and whiskey. <laughs> and sheep. <laughs> Don't like bagpipes. Can't get on with bagpipes. I'm sorry, man. I can't. I love Scotland, though. Many times I've been up there. Great crack. Been up there for rugby and everything. Right. It's a tile laying game where you collect sheep and wood and whiskey and stuff. Also scenery and you collect personalities that let you play out disc on a, on a supplementary board that give you special powers. And they're scoring four times throughout the game. The tiles are stacked in here as one to four. And you're building up a little river in the middle and then little tiles around and every time you lay a tile it activates the tiles around it to give you resources and then later on you can exchange those resources for stuff and there's a market you can buy and sell things and you look and score points and the way the scoring works is that there are four or five different categories and you see who's got the least of each category and you score compared to that so you can produce whiskey in various ways if sean had no whiskey barrels Rachel had one, Natalie had two, and I had four. We would score points depending upon how far ahead of the last person we are. You do it for whiskey, you do it for these scenario tiles, you do it for the personalities I said you can get, and there's a couple of other things as well. To me, that scoring all the way through forces me anyway, middle of the road play. Because if I'm the one who's behind, I feel obliged to take something that I know is never going to score me points because I'm never going to get to be the first in it, but it's preventing Sean from scoring points, which feels like a very negative move. So the scoring did not vibe with me. But Ronan, I've not played the game. Does that mean that you have more things for the next round and you're in a better position? Does the game balance in that way at all? Not really. I mean, you're taking, well, you, you're taking these things as opposed to taking other things. So, oh, say okay, I took a personality. Okay. So the way the world, it's a you know a round of tiles, and you choose how far ahead you jump, and you take that tile, and whoever's hindmost is the next person to go, and they can hoover up tiles in between and stuff. Right? It's your favourite mechanism from Australia. I was going to ask you about that. Does it? 
Because it didn't work for me in Australia, but the mechanism itself, for some reason, doesn't seem as harsh in this one. Can you jump as far ahead in Australia? Because I found myself missing out on like three, four goes in Australia. Can you can you do that in, in Glenmore, or is, it, or is it more condensed where you maybe miss your next go? You could jump 15 goes ahead. Right. You okay. can go as far around that track as you want to go, and then just wait. It depends how far everyone else behind you is jumping up. I, I like that mechanism. I like the mechanism every game. I found it a bit wasted in my first couple of plays because I didn't really know what I was doing. So it was all a bit blurry. So I was like, I'll just take the next one because everything's kind of good. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, oh, I'll take a personality. It's going to do me some good. Oh, I'll take this wood. I can use wood for stuff. So I was kind of doing that because the scoring is for everything and for nothing. I found it very hard to prioritize. But the, the mechanism itself I enjoyed it was what I was doing with the mechanism that was an issue. And what they've done to balance the thing that you can be behind and just hoover up tiles is, at the end of the game, you see who's got fewest tiles in play and then you lose points according to how many more tiles you have than that person. Right. Gotcha. So it's forcing you to play small. Is the problem that you are not... No, I don't, don't want to be me. You're going to You're be though, right? Really, yeah, I am. You're not really playing it very well, and you haven't really grasped how to get the most out of this. I don't know. You, you might have won every game you ever played of this, but the way things that you're saying is you're not quite grasping like how to eke out those points. Yeah, I haven't won. I haven't done terribly though. I think it's more the fact that I've that I've disengaged. So the right. theme, the 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 small four small play. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's hard to see your particular path through, that there's a, there's a spatial aspect to it that you've got these clansmen that you get for various things, and they have to be they have to be adjacent to basically if you be able to play a tile. But you get loads of them, and you're forced to have a small board by the game. So they're always mm. adjacent, and it just feels like a thing that's and there's a lot in this Not game. Necessary. That, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's like the clan board is like that as well whereby you take a personality this is an addition for Glenmore 2 and there's a completely different side game where you pay a bit of money and move along and get a weird power which is vaguely related to what you're doing as the main game but not really and I <laughs> have you played many of the chronicles have you opened up many of those boxes and added stuff in well I've seen all the components for the chronicles do you know why okay because <laughs> you had to put them all in the boxes because all the in game comes with all the eight chronicles in the base game all completely mixed together with no guide of what's for what oh don't talk to me i'm halfway through that process i, I it broke my heart so much i didn't go back to it <laughs> <laughs> that also i'm gonna have to say mate might be why i was disengaged from it because i got the game hoping to start playing it i had to go through that two hour long stickering getting things out reading every single rule, both of the rule book and of all the chronicles to work out what bits went with what. Yeah. I didn't get all the components. It's not a massive issue. They replaced it quickly. My box was split when it came. Again, they replaced that quickly. But that just added up to the fact that I was getting frustrated with this game before I even started. So did you kickstart this? I did kickstart it, yes. I got all the chronicles and they asked me whether I played any of them. No, I didn't. I played the base game. And then I was like, I should really try. And I looked at the first one, it's, it's boat racing. So when you build a river, you can push your boats along the river to score extra points. And I was like, yeah, that's that's not exciting. <laughs> so, all right, one thing, the bits are lovely. The quality of everything is great. 
That is really well made. They're really. Thick it does look lovely in a in a Euro type way, in a very Euro Scottish wood whiskey and cheap way. <laughs> it's not an art style actually. I enjoy, but it's well made. To put it that way. The only thing really I've got left, Ronan, before you sum up, is um, how well does it scale? Do you think it'd be good for two players, or do you have to have like three, four, five? Even? For the two player game, there's a dice, and the dice occupies the position on the track and you roll it. I think it's only one, twos, or threes that you can get. I could be wrong. But it jumps that many space tiles forward and takes that tile. So it's a right, very right. simple AI dummy. It reminds me a bit of Architects of the West Kingdom dummy player, actually, that it just does the negative part of the game, the interaction part, yeah. and doesn't worry about the rest of it. I actually think that was quite clever. That, that is a good design choice. I like that. Cool. Okay. Glenmore 2. I can understand fully why someone would love this game. I really can. I can see that it's all there. But for me, it's like it ticks a personal checklist of pet hates, of unreasonable pet hates. The theme, the art style, the force close scoring, the force small itty-bitty play. I'm sure it's a fine game, and I dislike it intently. (laughs) (laughs) You clown. (laughs) Speaking of disliking intensely, go on, bring us into the break with another one. Okay, so this is one I have been uh, playing for a long time. There are problems with the the manufacturer of the, of, of the game, um, some sh- shady business practices, but Everdell is the game I want to talk about, and it's designed by James A. Wilson and coming from Starling Games. The whole spiel about the game is that you're in the Valley of Everdell and we are the leaders of groups of critters who need to establish a new city. And we're going to do that by constructing buildings, meeting new characters and hosting events. You're going to move through the four seasons and the things that you can do are place a worker. Placing the worker is going to gather you materials, get you cards. The cards are your buildings and characters in the game and other special actions. You can play one of those cards. You can build your city with a tableau of up to 15 cards played from your hand or the meadow, which is a communal place where you can take cards from. And the last thing you get to do you can do is prepare for next season now what that means is that not everybody is going to be in the same round of the game because if i linger a bit longer in summer then dan and ronan could be in autumn already and uh, moving along their game so that was slightly different to me so you start in this game ronan with very very few actions and you feel at the beginning of the game that you're really not going to do much but by the end you ramp up, you're chaining things together because buildings have critters linked to them that can be placed for free if you have that linked building. And some of your buildings in your tableau are going to do extra stuff and it really does ramp up. That's nice. <laughs> is, that, is this all I'm going to get from you until the end when you have your rant? Yeah, I told you and you know well enough, we talked about this for a long time, I did not want to cover this game. Right, I'm going to do a solo review. You do a solo review of it. Whatever you want to say, you say. It's your podcast. <laughs> Ronan is morally outraged, which is fair enough. I kind of get it, but I wasn't going to cut off my nose with this one. So, lots of different ways to score points. <laughs> you're going to score from your tableau. You're going to score, you're going to aim for basic achievements or aim for missions. What I really like about the game is the way that the mechanisms blend. The tableau building, your worker placement, your engine building, your set collection, and your card drafting. They all blend almost seamlessly together. And with that sort of almost Beatrix Potter style of 
artwork going on in the background is very it feels very english it feels very calming and countrysidey not a word i know game can be luck dependent obviously if you're going to look for partners for certain cards whether they come out or not it's a massive stack of cards so that's that's something to consider you're not always going to get the partner for your card either to play it to your tableau or to achieve some of the missions that are available the game looks stunning there's a ridiculous tree on on the board that is mostly superfluous to the game you don't really need it i suppose it does help you with uh, elevating some of the some of the things that you need to see but that's about it other problem with the game is a very small iconography we talked about it in tang garden the actual pictures and the the writing on the everdell cards at the bottom that tell you what card they link to and what the powers do are very very small indeed and even the numbers of the cards so they'll tell you there's three of these cards in a deck it's really tiny you have to search for that for quite some time talked about a huge deck of cards having a slightly negative connotation but it also adds to the replayability of the game it can it can frustrate but the replayability is there in spades for me Despite the problems with the publisher and the shady practices going on, I find Everdell to be a really, really good, gentle brain workout. Love the artwork. <laughs> Always have great games of this. And we've got a new dog out there who obviously doesn't like Everdell quite as much as Ronan. And yeah, I'm a big fan of Everdell. I don't subscribe to the, the business practices of the publisher, though. Ronan! rant away but you do because you bought the game and now you're covering it and saying it's great <laughs> so how can you not i mean we live in an age where someone can follow the wrong person on twitter and get ostracized and called out and people will start refusing to buy their stuff and yet this person can have years and years and years of partners customers staff being mistreated just change the name of my company for the sixth time and that's okay everyone will buy my games and no one will care and it's ridiculous I don't know where the limit is. We can, we, you know, mistweet something. I oh, will ostracise you. That we're up in arms. Treat dozens and dozens of people like that. I oh, will buy your game because we like your game. There are hundreds of games. Play something else. No one needs to buy this man's games. Okay. And on that bombshell, we are going to come back once I've recovered and stopped crying in the corner. Yeah, you should be crying in the corner, scumbag. Okay, second half, the quick half. Circle the Wagons from Quinner Games, two-player game, taking around 15 minutes, designed by Stephen Aramini, Danny Devine, and Paul Klucker. This has a paper-thin Western theme. It's an 18-card game in which one side of each card shows four different terrain types, possibly with items in each of those four squares. There's uh, six different terrains in the game, but there's four in each card. And the other side has a rule of how to score bonus VP because at the end of the game, you're going to be scoring points for each individual space in your largest territories of each of the six different types, but also for the three different bonus rules which have been turned face up for this game. And to give you some idea, it causes much variety in the game, Sean. You've got the likes of Undiscovered, which will score you six points for each completely empty space that you've surrounded with cards, Target practice, so the symbols on there that I was talking about are all for scoring points. So in this case, for each row or column that you've created that has a gun in it and at least one beer, you're going to score points, bonuses for more beer bottles. Or cool water, 
which gives you three victory points for each wagon you have next to your largest area of water. So you can be drafting these cards and creating a grid, and there's tons of variety. Sean, straight away, a selling point in Circle of Wagons. Okay, so I looked at some of the reviews and stuff on, on Geek again, and... And that was one of the points that came up, Ronan, was the random goals. And some people quite liked them. It kept the game fresh and because it was randomising and lots of different things coming out. But some people said that it made the made much of the game irrelevant rather than providing interesting choices. You just had to go with the flow. Is that that makes any sense to you? No. What are they talking about? Because <laughs> the, the goals come up at the beginning of the game. So you can see what you're going for. <laughs> It's just like, says, okay, these are now more valuable. All right. Well, then I want to get more wagons if wagons score me points. It gives you some direction to draft. Right. Okay. I think that's okay. nuts. So the, the way you do draft, Sean, is that all the remaining 15 cards get laid out in a circle and you have a start card. Now, you can take that card or you can take any other card further forward, but every single card you skip over gets put for free to your opponent before then they get to take their turn. So... Oh. It does make some cards worth less, so that's fine. Give them to the other player. You don't have to take a card at any point. But are you giving them a way of scoring more points for having a larger territory, for example, and ignoring those bonus VPs? I don't think you know. I, I don't think there's an imbalance there. I think it leads to interesting choices. Yeah, I can. I can see that. I suppose if you really want something that's sort of five cards along. But you know your opponent needs something that's two cards along. Maybe you jump to the three, give him those three, and then you've got two cards rather than the one when you do jump to that next one. So I can see some interesting choices there for sure. And it's done in 15 minutes. And you add up your points and you just do your biggest area of each of the six territories. How well have you done on those cards? And bash, bash, bush. It is a very, very quick two-player game. A lot of people are talking about a game that I've never played, I don't know if you've played it, Sprawlopolis. People are uh, saying that they, they like this one, it's okay, but Sprawlopolis is the one that they would choose over this. Have you ever played Sprawlopolis? No. Is that a single-player game? Yeah, I think it, I think it might be. Um, okay, it's, it's, so what would they choose if there's... Drafting. What would they choose if there's <laughs> another <people>. person with <laughs> them? <laughs> but... Yeah, I don't know much about the Circle of Wagons running. It certainly doesn't feel like it would be a pain to play this one, given that it's only sort of 10, 15 minutes. So certainly give it a go. Yeah, if it was any longer, I think it would become quite irritating with the randomness and those choices wouldn't be quite so interesting. But in, in that short space of time, yeah, why not? I don't get the randomness thing, honestly. There's no randomness in the game. You see how everything scores and you see every card laid out. Once the setup is the setup, there's no random. So okay. those people are mad. Apparently also Sporopolis plays one to four players. Yeah, so uh, there you go. So um, play Sporopolis, people. <laughs> well, you know you never played either of them. Are you trying to review a game you've never played? Oh, I don't, I thought I'm not reviewing it. You know, good. It's a perfect bar restaurant game. Circle the wagons. I, I don't know what these people are talking about. It's literally no random. It's a fine little game. It's not innovative. That's the one thing I'd say against it. When you get it out, you're not going, oh, that's a brand new way of thinking of things. But it's interactive. It's varied. It's quick. It's smooth. I think it's a very good little two-player game. Recommended. Circle the wagons. I actually do think it sounds like a really cool little game. So I definitely want to play it. So moving on. To Cities Skylines, designed by Rustan Hackinson, coming from Cosmos. And Skitties? Cities Skylines, that's not going to happen many times in this game, 
is a polyominoes game of city building. You're going to build your cities and expand by opening new territory. While you're doing this, you have to balance the population and jobs. You have to balance your energy, your water, your refuse, your traffic, your crime and your oil with the overall aim to try you're trying to make your population happy. The decks of cards that the building that you're going to draw to play to play the buildings uh, come in as era one, two and three. And you've got access to all of them straight away. But the threes, for instance, will cost you more to get to interplay than the ones but will be more beneficial to the game so i suppose if you know and like computer games like sim city you're going to find some comfort initially in this one ronan and i know you've you've played some of those games i have played some of those and i think we say it quite often that the whole city building theme is very much an attractive one to us, and we've always been looking to recapture the feeling we got from that. I don't think it's possible in a board game, but that's not going to stop us from buying 30 of them in the next 10 years and trying. <laughs> okay. <Fair laughs> Sean, for what seems to be a relatively mechanically simple game, yeah, a lot of people are saying that the first one or two plays is very difficult. Some people seem to have given up at that stage, and others have forged onwards and said, actually, once I started realising that it didn't feel lucky anymore, and I did feel like I knew what I was doing. I then began enjoying the game more. Did you have the feeling, and if you did, why do you think it, it felt so hard to start with? I didn't actually have that feeling at all, Ron, and I, I, I had quite the opposite. I did do a bit of research with the various playthroughs on YouTube. I think I looked at Slicker Drips and a few others, and... So they gave me a feel for the game, and I think I was able to learn more by doing that and seeing it played than maybe just reading through the rule book. So maybe that's why. Is is that cheating? Is cheating too hard a word? Are you a bit of a cheat. Just, <laughs> a bit of a cheat. Double check. It's a co-op. It's a co-op. <laughs> cheating yourself so, only. Yeah. Okay. So we actually found it challenging, and we definitely had discussions throughout the game about things, but. Uh, eventually we we completely aced it we were one step off having like the perfect city so i think we need to actually make the game a little bit harder for ourselves and it does come with modules that change it make it harder make it easier and setups of the actual grid where the city goes out make it more difficult so i think yeah we, we probably would have to make it a little bit more difficult to answer your question ronan seamless sean because the next thing was sam geezer was banging on about put all the modules in does that make any sense to you <laughs> he said well, see, to really enjoy it he had to throw everything in make it as hard as possible and then he really started enjoying the game I wouldn't throw everything at once we started with two of the modules one of them was the ones that gives you a slight ongoing personal power so sort of slightly asymmetric power and the other one was a unique building so like sports stadiums and things like that which are massive but get you lots of points and we didn't really get on so much with the unique buildings. They they didn't seem to change the game in any way other than they filled up the areas quicker and left us probably made it a bit harder actually if I'm if I'm honest, because left us less room for the basics like the police station, the fire station, the refuse transport, etc. The ongoing player powers, yeah, we liked them. 
but it's not fundamental to the game. We haven't tried the other ones, but uh, they one of those is definitely going to make the game harder because it's the news headlines, I think, and it's going to make things happen to your city, like things are going to burn or blow away or things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be your choice or <laughs> what you want to do. I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. We didn't think it would be good to start off with that. Okay. Another comment is that sometimes you can get set on rails and what you should be doing by the early draws and your first few turns doesn't feel like you're making many choices. You're just dealing what's been handed and then you have to get into the game before you really get any choice of what to do. That is my one issue, main issue with the game, Roland, is there are certain buildings that you have to get and you do, if you don't get them early, you are sort of doing, as you said, you're fishing. You're fishing for those cards to yeah, come I think out. he actually so, mentioned that. Yeah, he had to fish through for certain things. Yeah, so there are, like as I mentioned, the fire fire station. You want the police station to drive down your crime. You want the transport to drive down and keep like cars off. The, the bus station, I think it's called, um, to keep the cars off the road and to keep the traffic down and your pollution down. So you're fishing through, and there's one in each of the decks. So there's one era one, one era two, and one era three of each of those things. So as as I said, Roland, you're definitely fishing for those three items, for those main items in the deck. I've got a question and then a quote to finish us off if that's all right. Lovely. Is it worth, do you think, playing with more than two players? The general consensus was not... It's not worth. I think you could do it, but I think it's absolutely fine with two, and I don't think it's going to get any better with more players. Okay, and I've got a comment for you. I couldn't go the whole episode without one. This is from OG Russ Hood, all right? His comment Mm -hmm. is... Now, I don't... This leads me more to questions about Russ Hood than it does about the game. (laughs) 2020 Top 250 nominee. Right. Suggesting top two hundred and fifty. He's gonna do a top two hundred and fifty of the year, but not not just ranking two hundred and fifty of them, but also have more than that as nominees. <laughs> How many games are you gonna play this year? And who's got time to rank two hundred and fifty of them? One thousand games. I'm gonna bring this one thousand games down to a mere two hundred and fifty. I didn't check his other comments to see if he's got like top five hundred nominee, top a thousand for the year. <laughs> That's dedication, right? City Skylines. Uh, City Skylines, I think I went in wanting to like this one, Ronan, really want because of my history with SimCity, etc. I do think it is a nice balance of trying to fit the polyominoes in the spaces given while making sure that certain tiles are adjacent or in the same region. And you need to keep an eye on all those tracks and make sure you're on top of things. I think it will end up getting a bit repetitive if I played this consistently. I think I'm going to play it once, maybe leave it a couple of months, come back to it, and I think I will enjoy it more by doing that. But in the microcosm of that one game, it is a really pleasurable experience, and we thoroughly enjoyed it, but it definitely has a shelf life, Ronan. Cities, Skylines. Beautiful. We're going to move on to one we have both played. It is Dungeon Degenerates from Goblin Co. One to four player. The playtime is 30 to 360 minutes. You'll see why that makes sense because there's lots of variety you can do with this game. And it's from Sean Arberg and Eric Raddy. It's a fantasy game in which players start as prisoners in the capital city of a fantasy empire that I'm going to say, Sean, is like slightly BDSM, slight hints of Nazism to this evil empire. Yeah, I think we're going to get on to that. (laughs) (laughs) 
you beginning of every single game there's a campaign and your choices are going to dictate how long your campaign can be but you are going to be offered a way to escape this dungeon and you've got four routes to go you can ignore this offer completely and just move on to a completely different start scenario where you're trying to do your own thing or you can go off and get this infected sorcerer's head now, this is no spoilers it's literally the first thing you read in the game and dig it up if you can find it and then once you do that it's going to give you three options of what you can do with this sorcerer's head once you found it but i won't give you those three options because that would be a spoiler the way you do that now actually should we talk about the whole <laughs> empire theme first and then go on to the mechanics <laughs> of the game and get that out of the way what do you reckon Okay, fair enough. <laughs> okay. So, the whole theme of this and the setting is something that is being discussed by people who have played it, so we might as well address it. It's from the designer himself. He says, it's got low-key, pervy sexuality, drug use, and it's based around the countercultural culture he was in as a teenager in the 70s in San Francisco, and a lot of, therefore, yeah, on their website, they sell stuff that's pentagrams you know with with marijuana related paraphernalia like just leaves and stuff nothing major like pen knives pictures of divine who people of a certain age will remember is famous for eating something very unpleasant um sort of studded leather and that art style comes through with the characters have got studded leather and skulls on them and iron crosses People say that there's swastikas in there. I haven't seen any obvious swastikas, but there's suggestions of lightning bolts and stuff, which could be linked into SS. They're definitely hinting towards that. There's the old World War One era spiked German helmets. So there's a countercultural kind of kink going on, an aesthetic to this empire within the game, Sean, who have captured you. Yes, I mean, I've seen what people are claiming are the swastikas, and I suppose they are swastikas. I think it's on one of the shields of one of the skeletons or something. In the middle of the circle, there's a swastika. And so it led me to actually do a little bit of digging. So where this whole game and the art style comes from is a a music magazine uh, called Pork. And... Pork regularly incorporated Nazi imagery until 2017 when they made a conscious decision not to do it anymore. Not because they felt like it was a, it was, it was offensive, but they felt like the backlash with the arrival of Donald Trump and the nationalism in America, they felt like they were putting themselves at danger, in danger by doing so. Now I looked a little bit deeper into it. And the reason that for the Nazi imagery and the occasional swastika, etc., was about confronting fear. And it was his way of confronting fear because he, uh, Sean Arberg, confronted the fear by he converted to Judaism, Judaism uh, because he married his Jewish wife. And he said that it was about confronting the fear that the from the obviously the Jewish and the, and the Nazis, and also about mild provocation for the hard left the 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 crux of the matter is i don't think he's glorifying nazism or or anything like that i think he's just saying that it existed i'm confronting it by putting it out there and that's i think i don't think there's anything more untoward than that Roland. yeah he was inspired to start doing this sort of thing counterculture when he read gene simmons biography and gave up his day job and decided he was gonna Okay. Um, I think personally, are you happy to play as Nazis in the game? Are you happy to play Memoir 44? 
Well, yeah, but I think exactly. that's a lot more yeah. obvious to me than this sort of idea of this counterculture idea. So there you go. That's how I would address it. And the fact that they spell kill, K-I-L, sometimes deliberately, I find that actually more offensive. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, it's interesting the response to, quickly in 2017 because I think you faced a time there. Before that, previously, for people, again, I guess of a certain age, the, the idea that the far right rise again was so ridiculous that it could almost be incorporated as as a mild protest and then it became a bit too real and now it is a bit too real and that's why you can't use it anymore and I think it's interesting to note the timing of that and why they did it and anyway we'll move on and start talking about board games again shall we (laughs) we're far too deep there on your turn as a party you can choose to be together or split up you're going to choose a stance and the stance you choose is either going to be to go slow and careful and looking to avoid danger or to go fast so you can move quicker and have the option to almost try and invite danger towards you if you want more of an encounter in order to sort of trigger more and get more XP and and if you're feeling particularly tough. Now, Sean, the first thing you're going to do is decide how you want to move on the map most of the times unless you want to rest. That map is atrocious. (laughs) (laughs) it's very hard even just putting out some of the key elements like you got to know where key things are on the board to place things on the board just finding them is absolute bum ache it's it's (laughs) terrible it is a really busy i mean this is going away from the art style okay so you either hate or love the art style i think it is a marmite or just ambivalent as i am (laughs) no i don't I started off hating it, thinking that's the worst thing I've ever seen, but I've kind of grown to love it because it's just so bad, it's lovable. So I've changed my mind on it. But yeah, the map is really busy and really awkward to find things on it, and it doesn't help the gameplay what, Which one's a road, which one's a path? Because there's two different rules for them. Exactly, yeah. Can't tell. <laughs> Can't, I don't. It's very... Played it several times, just about beginning to work out which is which. Leading on to which, the rule book. Not great. After we each had played our first game separately, we had a chat and corrected each other on certain rules. I think that we'd be. Getting- oh, mate, it was that was oh, that was painful trying to learn that. I was I was not happy learning from that rule book. I didn't find it as bad as you did, but I certainly was getting frustrated with it. And I printed stuff off the internet to try and help. And still, five games in, there are cases where I'm going back and going. This is really hard to find any reference to anything here. Definitely. The other thing you do if you choose not to move across the rap, the map is to rest. When you rest, you can recover your health, your morale. Everyone's got a certain set of stats. It depends on which character you choose to be, what their stats are. You can get hit by monsters, as you'd expect in the game during the encounter phase, and lose health. If you all lose health at once, you'd have lost as a party. You can also, where you are, explore the area by passing a test. All tests are a 2d6 roll against your stat for whatever it is, and all the characters have got different stats. Exploring makes it persistent throughout the campaign. It makes uh, moving easier, and it makes certain events less likely, bad events less likely to happen to you if you've explored an area and you know it. You can spend XP that you've gathered from encounters in order to upgrade, and you can upgrade either kit by trading as well but you can also upgrade skills you have you start with certain skills and there are others available to you each character type has got a certain set of traits there might be a barbarian a performer or a magic user whatever it might be and certain skills will be available to you and you have freedom there for what you wish to choose and each skill is upgradable which will also cost you your xp or you could even if you're in a town as well as trading you can invest in that town and make that town more viable and more secure the reason you might want to do that is 
because every space on the board, if it's a settlement that's got a town level, which means it's kind of safer, you can't get monsters there and you can trade, or a danger level, at the end of each turn, whether you've rested or moved, you're going to draw an encounter card. The encounter card will have a danger level on it, and if it's lower or equal to the danger level of where you are, and certain areas of the board are more dangerous than others, then you are going to have to face the encounter. The other thing it will do is it will push up the danger level in one space on the board. Now, when you have that encounter, there are story points where you can make choices, or quite often there are monsters which will come out of the deck to attack you, and they work in different ways, and they have work in different powers. Sean, those encounters are very varied. They're incredibly varied, but one thing, just to go back to that map, you're never quite sure what region you are in. <laughs> you're like, am I in that region? Or oh, I'm I thought that the region was okay with the colours. Yeah, I had a couple of times I was like, I'm not sure where I, I think I the orangey one we'll at the it. top blends a bit. I think you might be right. Yeah, with yeah, the purpley okay. and the orangey and stuff, yeah. But yeah, they are incredibly varied. You, you never know. It could be a sex dwarf or it could be something else. The sex dwarf leapt to mind for some reason. Yeah, yeah, in- incredibly varied. Yes, there's, there's a ton of content. So as well as there being like these different encounters, you've also got different characters and they play differently mechanically and you have to use them differently there are different upgrades to the same character you can upgrade differently from campaign to campaign there are different stories that you go through so every choice you make will open up a branching campaign within it now as you hit a story point you'll move on from campaign to campaign via the choices you make these campaigns can be we did one that was two missions long that was the whole campaign we did something we did the next step i know three my fairness three missions long and that was it We'd come to a conclusion for this world and something had happened. It had been taken over by a mad parrot god. <laughs> okay. And we basically made everyone high on acid. That happened. Some of the campaigns will be 10 missions long. And the variety, Sean, you're right, in terms of lore, for the base game only is really fantastic. It's sort of something a lot of games could learn from, I would say. Okay. So my caveat to that, Ronan, is... Where that's all brilliant and it's it's entertaining, the actual mechanisms in which you are achieving this are quite repetitive. You're going through the same steps over and over and over again. And I suppose you could apply that to, to most sort of dungeon crawler-esque games, but it just felt a little bit at odds with the with the sort of brilliant storytelling on one side and the constantly doing the same thing over and over again on the other side. I'm going to leave the combat mechanism alone for a minute. For the fact that you're just choosing rest or move, draw a card, rest or move, draw a card. It's a story game. It really now there are mechanisms in there, and there's more to it than that, and you're making choices. But it is a game to play for the story, and that's what you're here for. Yeah, fair enough. Fair dues. Okay. And you were going to go on to the combat mechanism there. I think it's really clever. Confusing, but clever. <laughs> I know you, I know you, I don't think it's that confusing, but you're not the only person I know that struggle with it. Rachel, we struggle with it, but I picked it up really quickly, and that's not, you know, it's just it, whatever, it clicked in our brains. Yeah, you're just, you're just calling us stupid, aren't you? Well, you, not Again. her. I'll never call her. I'll live, her. I'll live with you. This is really scary. Okay. <laughs> the way the combat works is that you choose a stance, attack, or defense, and the monsters have got different people they'll go to. They, they each have like a highest morale or highest influence or, or lowest of this and that. And they all have special powers as well, so they'll cause things to happen at the beginning of a fight. Or if something happens in the fight, they'll trigger off. Maybe they'll summon another thing, or they'll reduce some of your powers somehow. And 
it all links in to how you play and you're choosing defensive or attacking you're choosing to attack each other's because they've gone after a certain person someone's overloaded and I found each combat compared to the depth of mechanisms I'm going to say like maybe the Ravenloft system the combat in this was much deeper than it was for me in that you certainly have uh, more agency in, in the combat and you're thinking about it could go either way. It's not. It's not just a. Oh, if I roll this exact amount, then I'm going to kill it or what have you. So yeah, the combat is interesting. I just took me a while to sort of grok it. That was, that was my own thing. I like that your gears and skills, your choices, really, really influence how the combat goes, and that each hero feels different. And you have to think about how you're setting yourself up, up for combat. So Rachel and I breezed through our first campaign. We happened to have two characters. She had a magic user. She went defensive at the beginning of each fight and built up a shield that absorbed damage. And then once that could absorb the damage, she went on the offensive and did big damage. I had a sort of arena gladiator character who was good offensively. Then if I was taking some damage, I go back in defensive stance, but still had a glove that I could attack with when it's defensive, which is unusual. The second set of characters we got out for a second campaign didn't have such good powers. And we thought this game is really easy, just breeze through it. And we got mushed in the first game because we've been breezing around thinking we could beat everything up. And we realised we can't play these heroes the way we played those other two heroes. We're going to have to think more about what we're doing. And that, again, opened up a different aspect of the game to me. So would you say that there are almost beginner-level heroes and more sort of experience-level heroes? I think, yeah, there's, there's some that are certainly more obvious in how you use them. You run in and punch them in the face and you can use them either way. But I think just explore it because this isn't a game about winning and losing, it's a game about the story. I can only go back to that, Sean. Any final thoughts for us on Dungeon Degenerates? Not really. I'm not going to comment any further because I haven't really explored the game enough to to be able to do that. But I, I'm interested to hear your your final thoughts on the game, Roland. I think it's a bit rough. I think part of that is deliberate. It's a design and aesthetic choice. But actually, rule book and mechanically wise, and and presentation is a bit rough as well. But I found it to be a big hit because it was so quick to play. We got adventures done in, once we knew the game, 60 to 90 minutes for every one. A campaign might be between 3 and 10. So again, it's another game you're not spending years and years of your life to play through. You're discovering the story, lots of branching things. There's lots of content available now. It's quite pricey to get all that content, so be aware of it. You're not getting top-notch components by any means. But I think you are getting top-notch story and content. And I recommend Dungeon Degenerates as long as the aesthetic is not in any way going to displease you. Very good. Okay, so we're going to move on to DC deck building game Rebirth. Now, I really want to skip on through this one because a lot of the mechanisms are very, very similar, if not exactly the same, to the DC deck builder. In DC Deck Builder, you've just got a selection of villain cards, equipments, heroes, etc. that you're trying to bring into your tableau to, to defeat the supervillains once you get enough power from your hand. This game is very, very similar, in, but the difference is that you are going to add locations that are in play permanently, and not just ones that you play from your deck, and you've got, you can bring in movement into the game. So what you're going to do is move around this circle of locations and other cards that you can uh, get. So if you land on a card, you can then pay for that card in the same way you would in DC Deck Build and bring it into your hand. If you land on a location, it's going to give you an 
a power that that location supplies. The locations also supply bits of equipment that are there in multiple. So instead of having the kick cards that you do in DC Deck Builder, where they're just a big stack of them and you can always go to them if you don't really have any other options, these ring in like the bat signal and there's the bat bike and flight um, is in there as well. So you're moving around and eventually a supervillain's going to come out and they're going to start moving towards certain buildings and trying to destroy the buildings and you've got to use various methods and to stop them. If you land on the same space they can't move any further but obviously they're going to damage you rather than everybody else when they attack and you're trying to protect the city and defeat the supervillains and you've got a certain amount of time to do that. Every time you defeat a supervillain a little tracker moves up and it changes slightly the way the game plays makes it a bit more a bit more difficult for you to play ronan that is effectively rebirth have you looked into this at all you're not a, i don't know if you're a big, big fan of dc deck world are you yeah i quite like it i think it's a good game uh, but i just to jump in quickly ronan yeah <laughs> i was watching the dice tower top 10 yesterday about uh tom vassal's top 10 dc games and when dc deck builder came out you'll remember he absolutely despised it he was number six. He's 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 called on it. He's fine with it now. <laughs> okay, just just random because I always used to lament that how how much he hated it. And I always thought you're just that's so wrong. It's not. It's a really good game. But yeah. Anyway, I I digress. Off you go. But the reason that I liked it, Sean, is that and maybe this is what Tom has come around to thinking is that it's so quick that it was a seamless game. You felt like you're making some decisions. All the subsequent content that they've brought out has added more onto it, which I didn't necessarily feel added anything that great and was just slowing down the game. Here again in Rebirth, they've added more into the game. So that really is the key question to me. Have they slowed down the game because its speed and its lightness was what attracted me to it? Or have they added to the game? They have certainly not added to it, Rodan. Oh! The movement, uh, mate, the movement aspect is just boring, cumbersome. <laughs> So, as I said, as I touched on, sometimes you get a hero to block a villain character from getting to a location. So then that villain's going to attack that hero. Now, that hero might be just stuck there taking damage without getting any cards into their tableau because they're just there as a block, effectively. And then you've got to do that in times in the game because you don't want them to get to the buildings and start damaging the buildings. And that's very boring for that character because you're just there getting hit, especially early in the game when you can't actually hit back because you don't have the deck to do it. That, it just doesn't go well. And also, Ronan, some of the cards in this one are just not very well thought out at all. Some cheap cards, like a cost of two, are way better and obviously better than maybe like a five or a six. It just doesn't do the job that I want of DC Deck Builder. Wow. What, can they get any extra content of this right? I remember playing the Batman versus Joker two players, like one of the first extensions they did, and it was terrible. I was like, they got these decks wrong. Who have they got designing these games? Like, they had a good design to start with. They're letting loose, I don't know, what's on this whole system. I've got the Batman versus Joker, but the one I played was, was Green Lantern against Sinestro. And, you know, I'm a big Green Lantern fan. I'd was desperate to like it and i had to admit it wasn't very good they're, they're not really beyond 
the the standalone boxes of just DC deck builder. You had Teen Titans, you had Villains, and you had I can't remember the other one, but you had four uh, four versions of the same game effectively. Beyond that, I think everything else is just a, a noise and faff that just you just don't need. Okay, Rebirth Avoid. Avoid, yeah, yeah. It's not it's not great. <laughs> okay, we're gonna one game we're gonna revisit here, and then three crowdfunding games to talk about, and we're out of here. And the last one that we've played, we're gonna revisit is Elysium from Space Cowboys, two to four player game taking sixty minutes from Matthew Dunson and Brett J. Gilbert. It has got a Greek god theme. At the beginning of the game, you're gonna choose five out of eight Greek gods, shuffle all those cards into a deck, and lay out some cards player number dependent. You're going to be drafting cards through each round into your own area, but your goal is to move those cards from your area you've got down into the afterlife and make legends with them because that's the only way they're going to score. In terms of drafting, you have four columns. They're each a different color, and cards require you to have certain colors of columns available to you in order to draft them because every round you're going to have to remove one of the columns from your pools reducing the amount of options you have. Sean, straight from the bat and the main sort of hinge of Elysium is that tough decision. When the round opens up, it's easy. You can take any card that you like. As soon as you remove a column, you are making certain cards available only to your opponents and not available to you, making their decisions slightly easier if they go later in the round. But then, of course, they don't have first dibs on which cards to take. And it is an almost unique and very interesting decision to make. So, Ronan, I've got a confession. I don't remember playing Elysium. I know I've played it because I know I, I remember the act of playing it, but I don't <laughs> remember anything about it. I'm looking at this. I'm, I'm sure I've played this because I remember Natalie liked it. I remember you liked it. And I remember I really liked it. And I played it a few times. It's gone. It's gone from my head. You borrowed it from me for about two years. Yeah, no, I didn't play it. I just borrowed it. Okay. Gave it back unplayed. Uh, but I played it a good few times with you. I remember I remember in, in the early days of the pit when we reviewed it, I remember you bringing it round three or four times to my old heart place in London. And I remember really enjoying it. And I can't remember it. Okay. I'm worried. I'll, I'll keep going through the mechanisms then. And hopefully this will jog your memory and you'll have some questions. <laughs> Trust me, that is a tough decision. I thought I was going to get some feedback on that one. <laughs> okay. As well as drafting the cards, there's a set of what's called quests. And they are set out and they all require you to have a particular column left in order to take them, which again feeds into that decision. The reason you're getting these quests is it will set turn order for the next turn and from halfway through this onwards. And also it will give you a certain income in gold, in points, and in how many moves you can make into your legends, into the afterlife. Now the reason that you need gold is because after this drafting of quests and cards, everyone then gets to move their cards down to their legends, but every move is going to cost you gold. So you're always looking to, for ways of making money, and that's one of the things these cards can give you. They're going to give you actions you can take per round, they're going to give you synergies, they're going to give you one-offs, some of them gives you attacks against other players, some of them give you an income. Sometimes you want cards of the same god because they trigger off each other sometimes you don't depending upon what's come out and how you've built the deck and which gods and goddesses you've used they're going to be different strategies open to you and of course as it goes through that's what gives you variety now the reason you're moving down to these legends is you're trying to make up sets and you can either make sets of the same color there are numbers one two and three in each color 
or you're making sets of the same number. So you want as many as you can of the five different colored ones and five different colored twos. And again, the colors depend on the gods that you've put in play. The first person to make big sets is going to get set bonuses for doing that. And that's one of the ways, again, in which you're going to interact. You're going to be looking at each other, deciding, because you can get caught in sort of a puzzle, solitaire world where you're just looking at what you're doing. But the set bonuses are quite important for scoring. So as well as looking at what cards will work for other people, you're looking at what they are actually moving down into their legends and whether you can nip ahead of them in order to score a few points. You reset the draft each round. You play over five rounds and you add up your VP at the end for having those sets at the bottom, for having set bonuses. And depending if you've got Ares, God of War, there's also another way where you're trying to score prestige points during the game and the most prestige points will score a certain number of points and the second most, second most number of points and so on. Sean, believe me when I tell you, it is a purely tactical game and you have to embrace that. You can try and think of a way you're going to score points. But the fact is that this deck of cards is big and not all the cards are going to come out and you don't get access to all the cards that you want. You're going to have to roll with what becomes available, adjust to, to what you've been doing and scraping together points here and there to just nip ahead of each other. It's very quick. It's very nip and tuck. So I remember I remember the choosing. Is it is it eight decks of, of cards that you play? You choose five or is it seven? Yeah, you're choosing five out of eight decks. I remember some of those that are playing very differently. You've, t- you've touched on one of them with different scoring there, but I remember them all playing quite differently, but all having that sort of variety as you talked about. And is, is that something that's going to keep the game going for you? Because you've obviously brought it back into your rotation after a long time, Ronan. And did it feel fresh? And did you feel like you've got more life in this to come? Yeah, the gods are very much themes down their own path. So Hephaestus, for example, the smith of the gods... He brings lots of money into the game when his cards trigger for each other. For Poseidon, he causes lots of disasters, so you can attack the other players and steal points and stuff from them. Athena will give you stuff, but give the other players stuff. And there's actually recommended setups within there that says, play with these five gods, you'll have a more money game. Play with these five gods, it'll be a really mean game. Play with these five gods, you'll be working together. So it's nice that they also give you the idea of the sets. Now, those combinations are not endless. The gods don't necessarily combine that much with each other, so it's just what gods are in there, not how the gods combine quite often that sets the feeling for each individual game. Now, this is part of my idea to get games that I liked in the past that haven't played enough to come back in. So I have a set of them and I'm, I play them again. And this one we played and then we wanted to play it again and we wanted to play it again. And it didn't feel like a chore like it sometimes does. You're like, I should play the games on my my collection more often this one we really wanted to play more and i hope that these plays will mean that it is in circulation again because it really really stood up and we got it back out i haven't remembered enjoying it yeah we, we're still loving it so i remember when this one and deus were on sale in aircon and i did see a lot of people picking it up and playing it because of that reason and it was getting a lot of buzz a lot of people were saying actually i wasn't expecting it but that's a really good game and I remember at the time, Ronan, you you thought when we first started playing this that there was a lot of scope for expansions. Now I know that there's some there are some expansions coming out, aren't there, or just come out, but not the scale in which you thought that this really could be expanded. You've got me there, mate. Are there expansions out? Are there? <laughs> now I've got to check. Hang on. And now I've got to check. Don't throw those things at me out of nowhere. Well, I think the scope <laughs> for expansions was obvious because. You do, all you have to do is throw in more gods. There's none available. 
I can tell you that much. Um, whether they're, they're, there's none announced, which is a shame. And I'm not sure this game ever got the sort of the audience or the support that it deserved because it's very quick playing, it's very thinky, it's relatively easy to learn, and it really has got everything in an hour long Euro that you could want. What can I say, Sean? It, it's, it's a big one. That was the point. Maybe it's day use that they've brought out expansions for. But yeah, I'm just looking at the first thread on Board Game Geek. Let's convince Space Car Voice to publish an expansion to Elysium. Let's do that. I think I remember enjoying the game enough to, to want to play it again with you and refresh my memory. And you've obviously a big fan of it. So come on, Space Cowboys, get some expansions. I'm sure our, our influence will, will lead their business oh. strategy. <laughs> Okay. They'll, they'll be scrabbling right now. Absolutely. <laughs> get away from us. Lead us into three Kickstarter games, Sean. Fire off with this tiny little campaign. Yeah, very quickly, tiny little game, not worth mentioning. We have the follow-on to Gloomhaven, which is Frosthaven. And while I'm talking, I think it's around about the coming approaching the seven million pound mark so it's well into the the seven million dollar mark i think it's kind of plateaued <laughs> i think it's going to stay there but still that's a hell of a lot of money for a board game to make i've had a quick look at it and to be honest one i don't think there's a lot of difference in terms of the mechanics and the way the game is set up and the look of the game from Gloomhaven, I think they're going to play very similar. There's obviously going to be tweaks in there and there's obviously going to be story differences. I think the main changes they're focusing on, Sean, apparently there's going to be more non-combat things going on. There's going to be mysteries, which you're going to have to solve to unlock things. There's going to be a sense of seasons in that the winter will come and it'll be harder to do certain things. You might have to wait for things to unfreeze before you can go and do them also you're going to start rather than a city that's fully developed in a little village and apparently the party can be able to make choices as to what gets built and how the village develops and that will affect what scenario is available during the campaign so i think he's trying to make it even more into a living breathing world you can influence rather than being you know it already was quite like that but in terms of buying it for myself although i'm really tempted because fomo I think it would be crazy to spend that sort of money on a sequel to a game that I've barely touched the surface of. I've played maybe three or four games of Gloomhaven and I've forgotten how to play it, so I'll have to relearn it all again. And yeah, I think for once common sense prevails and I'm going to stay back. Ronan, yourself? One thing I'll say, Sean, that again players of a certain age are going to be really thinking Icewind Dale when they see this Gloomhaven to Frosthaven Baldur's Gate to Icewind Dale that's what that's what it triggered in me anyway I, I played 25 games of, of the longest Gloomhaven campaign I did and it kind of stalled mostly my fault I'll say when work got really busy and other stuff and also I think because we retired our characters and we loved our first characters and none of us loved our second characters. So 25 games, you'd think that would be a decent investment into anything. But for Gloomhaven, obviously it, it's not brushing the surface, but it's not fully delving in. So I too was double thinking it. Well, shall I, shan't I? And then Puria just went, I've backed it, lads. I've got it. Don't worry about it. So I don't have to make the choice. I'm going to get to play it. Hey, <laughs> God bless him. Because he's going to have loads of time to play it. Okay. Railwraith is the next Kickstarter campaign I thought we'd have a quick discussion about. It's from Hall or Nothing Games. Designer's Tristan Hall, 30 minutes long. It is a solo player game only. 
The world has been destroyed by the Archfiend, and you are the Veil Wraith, and you're going to be going through five scenarios in a campaign trying to defeat foes in order to win through in the end. And the way you're going to do that is in each campaign, each scenario rather, you're going to have to find five keys and then activate a portal and stay away from the Archfiend, because if he ever finds you, you have lost. For each of the scenarios, you're going to make a stack of a threat deck with five keys put through it like in pandemic style with sometimes specific enemies with the keys, sometimes other enemies, but each scenario has got its own specific threat deck that you build up. On your turn, you've got three actions you can do. Now you can you're going to use one of your things to power up one of those actions, and one of your things is going to, be to use one of those actions. They are all underneath a one, two, or three power marker, which means they've got power one, two, or three, depending upon where they are. But the powering up issues where you put power tokens on it to make it more powerful in its position. When you activate one of your powers, you move it back to position one so that it is now at its weakest again. So you're going to be looking in some way to rotate the three different powers. What are you going to be doing with them? Well, these threats come out each turn from that specific threat deck and they all have an influence or fight value on them. And basically two of your actions are either to influence or to fight in order to get rid of one of the threats that's facing you currently as long as your score is high enough. The last one is to explore and the explore power that you use has to be high enough to take any key that has come out of the deck into the threat area. And like I say, you need to collect those five keys, get to the portal and get through in order to win each scenario. The other sort of cards you've got are called memories. Now those are special powers. You get to draw one each turn. You can play as many as you want each turn though. So you can build up and they will allow you to break the rules in some way and boost what it is that you're trying to do. Any threats that are left in the threat area at the end of the turn are going to attack your spirit, which is more or less your health. If your spirit ever gets to zero, as well as if the Archfiend finds you, as I said, you'll have lost the game of Valwraith. If you get through all five scenarios, you'll have won the campaign. Sean, Valwraith, Hall or Nothing, we know that their games look gorgeous. This has gone in a slightly different artwork style in that it's all black and white, but still that distinctive, really nice style. The games do always look amazing. But going back to those games, Ronan, just Hall or Nothing Productions themselves haven't really done it so far for me, Ronan. The Gloom of, well, or, or yourself, I don't think. Gloom of Killforth, a game I'm really interested in. Eventually, I obtained a copy and it was very faffy. The mechanisms didn't marry up and I didn't play test it a great deal. I played one game and I just decided I didn't like it and I traded it on. You had issues with 1066 Tears to Many Mothers, which you've documented on our show. And I've heard very, very hit and miss reports about Lifeform, which is their version of like Nemesis Aliens style uh, sh- ship in space game. So I'm a bit tentative about any game coming from Hall or Nothing Productions at the moment, Ronan. Yeah, I I also am tentative, mate. You're right. I think they do a lot of things right in terms of production rather than get the actual good game, (laughs) which is unfortunate, which is why I think a solo game is is, is the easiest sort of game to design, to get right, as long as you can unlock the magic of fun. Because it's got a low price point, because I do get to play those solo games on nights, I am sniffing at this. There's also an expansion available with it, which pushes the price up a bit. I feel like if I wanted to get it, I'd probably get it with the expansion. So I I am a teetering on the brink as of recording. There's three weeks left. There's probably about two weeks left when this comes out. So I've got time to have a look. I've read the rule because you can tell I know the rules. I'm quite interested. And basically it's going to be how much money have I got left at the end of the month, whether I take a plunge in this or not. I'm I'm an on the brinker. <laughs> I, I probably would never play it, Ronan. But yeah, I, I I would look forward to hearing if you do get get it, see what it's like. <laughs> Last night, I texted Ronan to alert him 
that there is an expansion for one of his favourite games of all time, Lords of Vegas, isn't there, Ronan? Yeah, on Kickstarter. It's not just an expansion, there's a reprint, there's a reprint of the hard-to-get up expansion and then there's this new underworld expansion because the designers have got the rights for the game back and sean there was only one reason you'd have text me that because <laughs> i wanted you to buy the massive case version there's a couple a version comes in a briefcase we can fit everything in that comes with some poker chips 250 dollars bargain <laughs> have you got it for me yet have you got it for me yet <laughs> right let's do this quickly lords of vegas is amazing i already have up i didn't love it it added up to two more players above the four. Didn't think that was a great idea. We didn't think the game could cope with it. So they're going about up is an amazing expansion. Of course they are. I, I'm not so sure. The decorative case, and in fact a lot of things to do with this, are very loosey-goosey. They haven't come out with this. This I don't think they've done this Kickstarter at the right time in lots of different ways and including in the process of how along the line of production they are. They don't really know what the briefcase looks like. No. These poker chips, they have an idea, but they can't tell you what they look like. <laughs> There are these bags that they're going to include, not final design. Yeah, they're all renders. This is how it may look. Even the box. The box <laughs> may look like this. The normal box, never mind the fancy one. If this wasn't from Lords of Vegas, you'd be like, mm, this is really shady. You'd be checking some links and making sure someone hadn't stolen artwork from somewhere else. <laughs> Don't think the campaign is being run very well <laughs> in terms of that. You have to have something more solid than just, oh, maybe this, maybe that. Here's maybe some poker chips. And no one's paying $250 for some poker chips they've never seen before. They reckon their plastic and metal design will last longer than clays. Well, the clays were working great. People like the clays. Whatever. In terms of the actual expansion itself, it's Underworld. It's a bunch of, I think it's 50 cards. You can print and play them and see what they're like. And they just get laid out. There's three or four of them. And on your turn, you can spend money to buy a card and do a special action. And that's interesting enough to me. Unfortunately, for that one little deck of cards, again, it's something like $29. And in my head, given I'm going to have to pay shipping on that as well, it comes in a small box. I'm going to pick that up in the shops here if it comes out. And if it doesn't, that's fine. Lords of Vegas base game is a fine game by itself. I think they need to revisit how they're doing this campaign. Yeah, it doesn't look, it doesn't look particularly professional. It sounds great, having this case with all these all the, all the components. And they even don't know what they're going to use. They're, they're toying with the idea of cars as the, to mark off the lots. That That's right, involved. yeah, yeah. We're going to change the tiddlywings. We don't know what they are, maybe cars. Uh, we'll, we'll decide what they are, and then I might pay you. <laughs> mm. Yeah, strange, strange thing. I still thought you'd have bought it. You'd have banked it, just sort of like, click, whatever. I'm not you. <laughs> true this is true right i think that's brought us to the end of a another another show and another pit spit ronan jolly good thank you sean for your insight and wisdom and thank you everyone for joining us no you're just mocking me yes and thank you thank you ronan and of course thank you everyone and of course we are proud members of the dice tower network go there and the dice tower itself for gaming goodness galore if you wish to download our episodes we're on podbean stitcher itunes and spotify we also have our YouTube channel where there are pit stop videos available, but we have now moved to the Dice Tower YouTube channel for those, so catch our pit stop videos there. We are on social media. We have a Facebook page, we have an Instagram page, and we of course have a Twitter page. We are at Game Pit Podcast. If you wish to contact us, please send any questions you have about the show and we'll try and answer them to thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com or pop along to our Board Game Geek Guild and we're happy to answer questions there. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time on The Game Pit. 
Music by E. Aaron. Oh.